Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Uh, this month in October, we are having a full tribute to Magneto for the entire month on both the main channel and the Patreon channel. It's going to be all Magneto all the time. I'm very excited to uh, review this very complicated character. Now, if you jump way back on my show, we did a trial of Magneto two-parter a little over a year ago. One one of the episodes featured all of Magneto's pre-continuity history, everything that is set before the uh, X-Men number one debut of this character. The second focused on the uh, crimes of Magneto prior to uh, him getting turned into a baby, which is the story with uh, Alpha the Ultimate Mutant uh, that we will get to my show on later this year, or later next year. I am thrilled to be joined this morning by uh, one of my very favorite writers, and I'm thrilled to call a friend through our connections on this show, uh, Mr. J.M. DeMatteis himself. J.M., how are you? I am good. How are you doing? I'm so good. It's great to see you today. Now, I feel like uh, we've met twice on this show and we've corresponded a bit, but I feel like I know you really well, having just finished your incredible graphic novel from the 90s, all about your life called Brooklyn Dreams. Uh, ah, okay. it's like one of my all-time a, favorite projects. Yeah, It's such a great book. I actually kind of want to start there. Do you want to talk a little bit about Brooklyn Dreams? I'm it's always happy wonderful. to talk about Brooklyn Dreams. Yeah. What do you want to know? There it is. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how the, I, I mean, I've, I've written a memoir and I've published, I'm working on my graphic memoir at this point seeing this done and your work with glenn barr and this series it's just phenomenal it's a really beautiful project how did it come to be we'll get to magneto in just a minute everybody i promise <laughs> um i was hanging out with magneto one day and no, no i was trying to try to tie them together here no back when i was working on moon shadow uh, which was the first big creator-owned project i did back in the 80s with john j muth still one of my all-time favorite projects Moonshadow was autobiographical, but it was autobiography run through a filter of this cosmic fantasy. So I knew what it was all about, you know what I mean? But yeah. the readers didn't necessarily know where it was autobiographical. But one of the things that used to that uh, that we did in the story is periodically we did what we call what I would call Brooklyn flashbacks because the main character's mother was this hippie from from Brooklyn. So we would go back to her childhood in Brooklyn and little bits and pieces of my own childhood would be filtered in there. But, but it, well, that was not strictly autobiographical, but I was picking up on things and building a fictional character kind of based on my own life, um, but not directly. But I liked, you know, being able to go back and tell these little real world Brooklyn stories. And I thought it would be really fun to just do it, you know, just, just you know, because we all have the stories that we tell. That, you know, three o'clock in the morning, we're sitting around with our friends and say, oh, let me tell you about that time I got arrested when I was 16. Or let me tell you when this happened or when that happened. So, you know, these stories woven into the fabric of my life. And I said, why not just do a whole graphic novel that way? I, I actually pitched it to Epic back then, back in the late 80s. And I forget the reason why it never got off the ground. But I just, as often happens when you're a professional writer, you come up with a pitch, you come up with an idea, something doesn't work. You put it away for a couple of years, you take it out, you play around with it a little bit. And in the, I'm trying to think, it must be the early 90s, DC launched uh, an imprint, which I think at that point, because it kept changing names, it ended up being Paradox Press, started out as Piranha Press. A guy named Mark Nevelo was the first guy there. Then Andy Helfer eventually took it over, one of my favorite uh, editors and, a, and, a, and an old friend. But Nevelo was a really good guy, too. I pitched him that idea, and uh, they loved it. They wanted to do it. And I had in my head what I wanted it to look like. 
little bit of Eisner, but other things going on in my head, but certainly with an Eisner flavor. Because in, in, in those years in between Moonshadow and Brooklyn Dreams, I had really discovered Eisner in a big way. Contract with God, I still think, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest graphic novel ever. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of work. And Eisner was a genius. Um, and he kind of showed the way to doing these personal stories in comic book form. It was a big influence, you know, but of course, I'm a different generation, a whole different set of experiences. So to try to take that Eisner approach and filter it through my own personality and experience. And I had a visual imprint of what I wanted it to look like. And Nevelo opened up the drawer in his office and took out this artwork and said, what do you think about this guy, Glenn Barr? And I looked at it and it was exactly what I had been seeing in my head. When does that ever happen? It was like, this is exact, this is it. This is the guy. And, and so, you know, off we went. And I have to say it was both the easiest thing I ever wrote and the most frightening thing I ever wrote. It was easy because this was my life. These are stories I've told. This is, this is stuff that was, like I said, woven into the fabric of my being. But suddenly it's out there without a filter. It's like, even though I gave, I did, I gave the characters different names. I didn't call the main character by my name, but it was all true. I just did it because with memory, not everything is accurate. Right. And if suddenly it's a book that's about me, then if it really didn't happen at Tuesday at three o'clock, if it happened the following Wednesday at five, you know, you know, but that's not what our lives are about. And that's not what memory is about. Memory is about the authentic uh, emotion and psychology at the core of that memory. We can get the details wrong, but you want to get the emotional truth correct. So uh, so that's why you know, I give everyone different names, but everything in that book is basically what happened. And as I remember it, and it was just an extraordinary um collaboration. Glenn either gave me exactly what I wanted or improved on what I asked for. It was just one of those things. We just clicked. We understood each other. And one of the best compliments I ever got was from a writer, uh, a comic book writer that I know, who said, you know, I always thought that the best comics have to be made by one man, one mind. You know, uh, the guy, the same guy that writes it, draws it, and that's what makes the best work. He said, reading Brooklyn Dreams read like it was created by one consciousness, you know, that it was one person that created that. And that was a, that's a great compliment. And it's a piece of work I'm, I'm really, really proud of. And um, we're actually, there should be a brand new edition out next year. For, I can't say from who yet, but we're, we've already signed the contracts and we'll do a nice new edition because it's been out of print for a little while. There's um, something I, so there's something so magical about uh, and I'm going to I'm going to say this with affection, having written my own memoir at uh, at the age of 38. I uh, the 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 writer and their need to understand themselves and the way they choose to weave a story from a particular perspective and the work that we put out when we do this type of work is both fiction and nonfiction because we change these names and we tell the narrative right. in a particular way and we omit certain details because when you're writing about people that you love you got to be careful what you're putting out yes. there because people and get believe upset me there are you things share their stories <laughs> there are things in brooklyn dreams thing i should say things that weren't in brooklyn dreams that i just was not ready to address and discuss you know family issues and things that i kind of hint at and you know there are little little sort of connectors there that if you follow them maybe you could come to that conclusion but i just wasn't ready to address in a public way not so much for me as for my family, you know. Um, but uh, but it was it was really like I said, it was it felt like writing that felt like I was on a tightrope because it was so there was you know it wasn't I didn't have Spider Man's mask on, you know. I mean I, there are Spider Man stories I've written that are completely autobiographical. You wouldn't know it, but it, but but they are, you know. Um, but you don't have that mask to protect you. You're out there. You're naked. It's just you. 
Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was the scary part. But the actual writing was just like a flow. It was great. It was fun. It was easy. And that, it, you know, and, and it still remains one of the, my two or three, depending on the day, it might be my favorite project. It may be my second project, depending on the day you ask me. It's a beautiful work. Everybody check out uh, Brooklyn Dreams. Not only does it teach you more about Jaya, but it's it's just a stunning time capsule of of a particular time in history uh, and a particular exploration of psychology and character that's really beautifully done. I kept seeing it as like a one act play, uh, like a one man show, someone performing on a stage as uh, as there's pictures behind a uh, really, really beautiful work. Uh, now, Jam, I know you Thank have- Thank you. I know you have an extensive comics history. We've had the lovely opportunity to explore some of your work on this show before. Uh, we're going to talk about your work with Magneto in uh, just a moment. I want to welcome my co-host for today as well, uh, Anas Abdul-Haq. Anas, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry I'm late. <laughs> oh, you're okay. We're, we were just talking about uh, about some of uh, Jam's work. Uh, Anas is uh, is doing some incredible work in comics as well and is a frequent guest on my show. It's so nice to have you here, my friend. Uh, so Jam, I'd love to start our conversation about Magneto. Tell us a little bit about uh, how this project began. And uh, one of my particular key questions as we're starting, and I'm going to introduce the character in a little more depth in a moment, is uh, what was it like to research this history? And how did you choose which time period to set this story in? Uh, as we record this, only the first issue has been released. But before we release this episode, the second issue will have been released. Right, and as it will be out in a matter of days from where we sit in time and space right now, yeah. Um, you know, it came about in a very simple way. Uh, an editor at Marvel that I've worked with before, Mark Basso, called me up and said, hey, you want to do this Magneto miniseries? He told me when it, the time that it was set in. <laughs> and that wasn't I, that wasn't my pitch or anything. I, I wasn't thinking about it. They came to me with the basic premise, you know, Magneto uh, or Magneto. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, <laughs> at that period when he's sort of just taken over uh, the school from Xavier uh, and he's trying to chart a new a new course in his life. And they said, and we would like to be able to look back. And it, he came to me because he knows that one of my, one of the things I love to do is root around in the villain's psyches or every, any character's psyches, but especially the, the people. And I put villain in quotes, you know, because no villain thinks they're a villain. A lot of the villains really aren't a villain. It all depends on your perspective. Um, so he knows that that's sort of my forte and my passion to be able to dig in there. So we said, which basically, would you like to do that with Magneto and or Magneto or both of them? <laughs> <laughs> and so let me back it up a little bit. When I was in junior high school, uh, I had what what I, I only half jokingly refer to as a religious conversion from DC to Marvel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, and one of the comics I fell in love with was the X-Men. And if you go back, you know, the X-Men in the, this is the, probably the mid sixties when I'm in like seventh grade, uh, it's not, it was, it was hardly Marvel's top tier book, but for what, something about it clicked with me and I fell in love with it. And those books were still so new that I actually went, the first back issue of a comic book that I ever bought was X-Men number one for the astronomical price of $3, <laughs> oh my God. which, you know, for me in the seventh grade, three bucks was a lot of money. There was a there was a guy who used to have an ad in the back of the New York Times book review selling old comics. Like it wasn't that easy to go find old comics, you know. And I bought it through this mail order thing, and then eventually I found a a used bookstore in my neighborhood that also had old comics, so I could go there and buy them. So I fell in love with the X Men, um, and I think you know what it is. I think there's always 
if you were reading Marvel then, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, you know, they were the top of the mountain. Everybody loved them. So I think we're, we're all looking for that little niche book that we're going to, it's going to be just ours. And that's kind of what X-Men became for me. It became that little niche book that was my, my personal passion. So one of the fun things about working on this project was going back and rereading the really, really early uh, X-Men stories. When Magneto you know, writes his name in the sky in cursive. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Using metal filings from an army base, you know, which is actually pretty cool, you know. But when he, it's like Surrender Dorothy, that big surrender thing he puts yep, in yep. the sky. Yep. Yeah, yeah. See the and, first episode uh, of my podcast for more on that particular. <laughs> so, and of course, you go back and you read that material. And here is a character who is just such a one-dimensional villain. I mean, he, if he had a mustache, he would twirl it. You know what I mean? Uh, he's just, he, he's he's horrible. He's even horrible to the rest of his brotherhood. I mean, he's not nice to anybody. He's an awful, awful human being. And for me, and the talking, fun is that- We're talking uh, like he creates a metal belt and straps it to Toad so that it's easier for him to beat Toad up. Like there's there's a lot of crazy stuff. In yeah, this just it's just he's he's just he's he's just awful. There's not even a a hint of human decency in this character, you know. Um, and so the fun for me is well, how do we square that version of the character with the much more nuanced version that came along and evolved over the years? And that for me became the fun of the story to have Magneto and or Magneto. Uh, looking back, let's let's stop for a second and get to this question of the name. <laughs> you know, I, we're, we're just talking about this before we started recording. If you use the English language and you look at that name, first of all, he's like a magnet guy. I'm surprised they didn't, given the, the time period, they didn't call him Magnet Man, you know? And they just stuck an O at the end of the word magnet. So he really, his name should be Magneto. There's nothing to indicate a long E in that name. Someone said to me that when the, the, the 90s X-Men cartoon was the first place where he started being called Magneto. I don't know if that's true. And that's where it got into the popular culture. But it doesn't make any sense to me that it's pronounced Magneto. I'm happy to say it, but I just want to go on the record and say it doesn't make any I mean, sense. You know, it is, it is how it is. Like, we don't know how to pronounce these words as like when we're reading them for the first time. When I first read Namor, right. I don't know if it was Namor or right. Namor. And now it's been confirmed that it's Namor, but we didn't know that for for all this time. Yeah, except a, you know, it, 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 everyone else that everyone at Marvel always referred to him as Namor. It was never Namor. All of a sudden, he sounds yeah. French. I am Namor. <laughs> you know, there's a funny there's a funny note here on the name pronunciation in the late I think it's the late 60s, maybe early 70s. In an issue of What the There's a comedy story about the X Men and they're fighting Magneto, and it's M A G hyphen N E A T O, like Magneto. <laughs> that's <laughs> like funny. That's pretty funny too. But uh, but keep going, Jeff. <laughs> anyway, I, you know, I, 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 we don't have to spend our time on the pronunciation, but I, I every time I, I do an interview now about this book, I always get trapped in this Magneto Magneto thing. So Derek, for, Derek the, Kunskin, for my own peace of mind, oh, go ahead, Derek go Kunskin, ahead. if you're listening, you'll be very thrilled to hear that JM also pronounces it Magneto. So anyway, keep going. So I will be pronouncing it that way for the rest of this interview. So that's okay. <laughs> so anyway, so the fun for me was, was trying to square those things and trying to understand how that guy and that guy are the same guy, especially when you add in the backstory that came later. And that became the challenge, and that became the fun of writing this story. 
There is something unique about Magneto right from the beginning, however, in that he is fighting for the cause of Homo Superior right from the start. He's obsessed with the idea of mutant homeland and mutant superiority. And you get to explore this in your first issue of Magneto really beautifully. But there is something, I mean, he's got that Doctor Doom energy, that Mole Man energy, that Red Skull energy. But there is something very special and very unique as he launches himself into the United Nations almost from the beginning and demands a country for mutants. And he creates an asteroid in the sky for mutants to live on. That's well, he, create, he creates, I'm looking at those old stories. He has a new um, headquarters every 30 seconds. You know, he has, first he has an island, then he has. A, an asteroid you know it's like so actually in this series it turns out that this where, where our villain of the piece Iray, where she is headquartered is one another one of these secret bases that that he had that he completely forgot about so, yeah, so many of them you know it's like <laughs> oh this one right i remember this one yeah yeah what was your research into this character's history? Uh, now, given that it's Marvel, there will never be a time when we're done adding things to the early years of Magneto and Professor X, right? right. There's always going to be right. more prequel stuff. But given Magneto Testament, the stories in classic X-Men that explore his years as a Nazi hunter and his daughter burning alive and his wife running off in horror as he manifests his mutant powers, what was it like for you to study these things? And how did you reconcile these two versions of the character? Well, to study, you know, the great thing about my job, you know, study means reading comic books, right? Yeah. You know, and I, I do animation as well. So I always say it's like, wow, I get, you know, I'm I'm watching cartoons or reading comic books and it's work. <laughs> you know. And if 12-year-old me could only know that this is what I do for work, he would just faint <laughs> away, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean I reread a lot of those early X-Men stories and then, you know, uh, and obviously read a lot of new mutant stuff. They sent me like, I don't know, how many dozens of issues of new mutants in digital form to go through. Because I'm not, from, I was not familiar with that period. Uh, I never was, never really read the New Mutants, so I was not that familiar with that period. So I read a lot of that. Immediately fell in love with the character of Warlock, who I think is just such a wonderful, bizarre, playful character. The Bugs um, Bunny of the X Men universe. Yeah, and and boy, what a difficult character for an artist to draw, too, man. Oh yeah. And and Todd is doing a, a sensational yeah. job. Todd Knock character. on this is a brilliant, yeah. beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, he's just and he he is so immersed in this stuff. He knows the continuity upside down, inside out. You know far more than I do. Um, and, you know, I could not lose myself in every bit of continuity, because if you do that, then you become a slave to the continuity. What you want to do is get to the essence of the character, the essence of what the conflicts are, the essence of who he is. And, you know, what I came up with in, in thinking about it and, and looking it over was, like, I mean, talk, I love characters that are split souls, you know, that are full of conflict, that sort of Dostoevskian war of the opposites, you know, and he is... I mean, he may be the most complex, con uh, not convoluted, but complex character in the Marvel Universe, just emotionally and psychologically complex. And so how do we square this guy with this guy? And what I, the conclusion that I came to is both things are true. What I decided, and uh, which, which they went for, thank goodness, or I wouldn't have had a story, is that the, the persona that he was presenting to the world then, and of course, you always have to stretch things a little bit in some direction to make these things work, because you're dealing with 60 years of continuity and stories that are always, no matter how, the, how hard you try, are going to conflict in some way. But my concept was, he was essentially playing a, a role that he thought was needed in the world. The mutants were were uh, were looked down upon, were their, their, you know, their rights were, were being taken away, their 
being squashed. They were feared. They were hated. And he said, well, I'm going to become the thing that they fear. And he knew that in response to that, Xavier would rise up to oppose him. So, A, let me give them exactly, let me bring their nightmares true. I will be the thing that they fear. And then they will see this other wave of mutants step forward, not just to protect themselves, but to protect humanity. And that will that will create a shift in perception that will help mutant kind. So he's willing to sacrifice himself, in essence, uh, in order to pull that off. I'm not explaining it as eloquently as I do in the book, but that's the general idea. But, but the thing not to forget is there's another part of that says, and you know, if it doesn't work, I'll be that guy. I will squash humanity and I will do whatever it takes for mutant kind to be safe. So both those things are going on. You know, there's this nobility in what he's doing, but there's always the part of him that is ready to just step forward and say, okay, this isn't working. The hell with you guys. I am good. I'll, I'll destroy humanity if I have to, in order to protect my people. Um, which makes him not an easy character to find. It makes him very complex and, and makes him very, very interesting. And then there's the other, there's the other thread, which is he's pretending he's playing a role, but there's a wonderful Kurt Vonnegut line that I quote later in the series uh, from mother Knight uh, call says, we are what we pretend to be. Mm. Mm. Pretend to be a soulless one dimensional villain long enough. And that persona will take you over. You know, I've approached the same thing when I've been writing Batman. I've done Batman stories where he realizes, you know, Batman is a persona. It's a mask. But you play that role long enough and you can become that thing. And it's always, for me, in my mind, it's always a struggle for Bruce Wayne to be to find that place where he has to step back from the role of the creature of the night. Because I don't believe Bruce Wayne is a crazy creature of the night. I think it's a role that he plays. And I think he is a good and decent man beneath that, not a psycho. I don't I don't buy into psycho Batman. So it's the, the same problem gets applied here to Magneto. If you play that role long enough, do you become the very thing that you pretend to be? So there's so many, there's so much meat here. There's so much to play with. And then added in that he's in this new stage of his life where this guy that he has opposed for so many years, he is now the heir to this dream. He's the one that's going to bring this, that is expected to bring this out into the world and take care of these kids and do, do something that he may not be prepared to do or may, may not be, forget prepared, may not be equipped to do. Mm -hmm. So there's that tension too. There's so much going on there. It's like a big giant stew of psychology and emotion. And uh, it's just so much fun to go play in there. Uh, Anas, let me hear some of your thoughts on Magneto number one. I absolutely loved it. I, I really like you. You dug into everything I wanted to ask. Um, but what's really interesting for me is that for readers, uh, the this period between X-Men number one and the New Mutants when, you know, Magneto is in charge of the Xavier School, it's decades. But when, you know, when you flash back to it, it says a few years ago. So right. in my mind, they put it all into perspective, like, this is all happening in a very short span of time. And... Magneto, Magneto having to reconcile with this person, with this character that he used to play with, and he had to reckon with who he was and the complete shift when he's seeing these children who only see him as a villain, only know him as a villain. It was a very interesting direction that you took the character for me, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny with 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 comic book time. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like it's like you know when we did back when we did the clone thing. Well, it'd been twenty years since that clone story, but we decided it had been five years. And I think five <laughs> years is always a good amount of time to play within comic book time. So in my mind, maybe that stuff was five years earlier. 
which means, as you're saying, it's pretty close in time. It's yeah, not it that is. long since he has been viewed as the, you know, as this as this horrible, horrible, evil force, you know, um, rampaging across the planet. Mm-hmm. So I want to introduce the complexities of this character for just a moment. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this month, uh, this month on my show, looking at different parts of Magneto. Magneto is the tyrant, the murderer, the world conqueror. He's also the father figure. He's the mutant messiah and the leader of nations. He is the trauma survivor. He's the histrionic showman with the purple costume and the flashy cape. (laughs) He's definitely the supervillain, but he's also the teacher. He is the idealist or the dreamer for what it means to be mutants, but he's the opposite of Professor X at the same time. Uh, He's the conqueror. He is the lover. He is the dreamer. There's a complexity to him that's fascinating. Chris Claremont, when he's first conceived of the changes in Magneto's character, as he tried to reconcile with the complexities of history, gave us the uh, concentration camp survivor version of Magneto first, which was later beautifully expanded on in the series uh, Magneto Testament by Greg Pak, which we will be reviewing later in this same episode after we conclude this interview with JM, so stay in tune for that. Now, Claremont, as far as I understand it, based his version of Magneto off of the world leader, uh, Menachem Begin, who is uh, one of the founders of Jerusalem and kind of the polar opposite of David Ben-Gurion. And the idea of Magneto being the opposition to his friend, uh, Professor X, uh, who's also his worst enemy, is a really fascinating version of him as well. Now, you do this really cool thing in Magneto number one, where you address a lot of these. You talk about Magneto having a flair for the dramatic, but you also talk about him being very reasonable, losing his temper, uh, seeing the complexity of, of his dream versus Xavier's dream. And at the same time, there's a bend to him where he is confronting the idea that some people might see him as Hitler. You also give him kind of a haunted version of his past as his family, visions of his family and his own child self kind of appear to him. A lot of people... A lot of writers, when they're exploring comic book supervillains, will give them a mental illness of some kind. There's a schizophrenia or dissociative episodes or dissociative identities. Uh, You don't do that. You just kind of combine them all into one really complicated form. But you show him as a very arrogant, but also very humble, but also very tortured villain. I'm really excited to see where you go in this series. But the complexity of this character is hard for people to capture. In most stories, you see one version of Magneto, but not the others. Uh, How? I've kind of already asked you this question of how you reconciled this, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what I just presented. Well, it's just, you know, what you just said is what we've been talking about and what what appeals to me, not just about his character, but about any character. Because if you really peel away the layers uh, uh, around any of our psyches, we're all, you know, the great thing about comics uh, uh, and these kinds of stories is we're taking a psychological and emotional reality that we all live with every day. I mean, if you, if you, if you dove deep into my psyche, you'd find just as much lunacy as you would find. I mean, I just in, did. I read psyche, dreams. You know? Right. You know, <laughs> and that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know? So it's, it's, you know, but with, with these characters, they're larger than life. So we, we get to take a magnifying glass and a projector and project psychological and emotional truths that we all live with out onto the bigger screen in a, in a bigger melodramatic way. But you want to stay rooted in the psychological and the emotional truth. So here is this wonderful character. You know, in the end, we talk about Brooklyn Dreams, everything is autobiographical. You know, I relate to to Magneto because there's something in myself 
that always relates to these characters that are full of conflict and duality, that are striving for transcendence, that, you know, we 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 all have things in our lives that we regret, things that we've done that we feel that we shouldn't have done. We all have, we all struggle with guilt in some way, shape, or form. But these characters get to live that out in this in this giant way. And and he he again is just as I said earlier, I don't think there is a character in all of Marvel that is quite as complex and conflicted as he is. So for me as a writer, it's, per- it's perfect. It's Who wouldn't want to write that story? And I'm amazed looking back that I never did in all these years. I've never written the character before. If I have, he was in for a panel or two somewhere. Um, but that's it. Uh, so this has been, and plus, I have to say, the other, the other great thing about this project is, that 12-year-old kid that fell in love with the X-Men back in the in the seventh grade is having the time of his life because we're also reenacting sequences from those days. So it's the original X-Men and we're, we're replaying. It's almost like replaying those incidents through sort of a warped funhouse mirror, you know, or 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 you yeah. think you think it's A, but it was really B. Not only that, it might even be C. There's so many things going on here in what we thought was a very straightforward cut and dried um thing one of my favorite uh x-men uh issues when i was a kid was the one where uh magneto took over the school um i think it was after the first sentinel story maybe and and they're all in the hospital and he comes in and he takes over the school and uh, angel's parents show up yeah this is where he tries to create an android mutant army from the dna of mr and mrs worthington (laughs) something like that yeah we don't want to explore that too deeply but you know (laughs) <laughs> but I just I remember as a kid thinking this is just such a cool story and and you know Iceman is wounded and he's the weakest X Men and they're you know and he's the one that's got to really go up against him and so in I think it's in the second issue it might be the no the second issue we get to replay that one in a in a very different way as well so I get so I'm getting the twelve year old in me is getting to revisit these stories that I loved so much looking back some of which make absolutely no sense at all I just want to say <laughs> but they're still great because we you yeah. know. The, the, when we, we look at them now from the eyes of our time and our, our our way of storytelling in comics, but if you go back then and look at what else was happening in comics, this stuff was like dynamite just exploding every month at, out of Marvel. So some of it seems, you know, silly or, or it doesn't make sense or this or that, but for its time, it was revolutionary. And of course, as the 60s went on, you know, as, as Kirby and Stan and Ditko and all those guys really, really found their footing you know, it was extraordinary, but, um, but it's, so it's easy for us to kind of look back and dismiss these stories, but when you put them in the context of the times, uh, it's a very different thing. But anyway, the, the, the 12 year old fan in me had a blast doing that. The adult writer in me has had a fantastic time digging my fingers into this complex psyche. You know, it's like strands of spaghetti and you pull one out and then you pull another. Oh, well, what, I didn't know about that. What about this? Holy, you know? So it's just, it's, it's been great. It's really, really been great. Um, yeah, and you know, speaking of looking at these stories from a different lens, Ira is it? Is it Ira? Yeah, the villain of the story. Yes. So she took Magneto's lessons to heart. She like really uh, internalized all of the perso- the persona that he was putting out into the world. I would love to know how that plays into you know confronting Magneto with his version of himself that he used to be, and how that relationship will develop with the new mutants involved in the story. Well, I can't tell you how it's going to develop. You <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but <laughs> I'd love to tell you, but I can't tell you. But uh, but one, you know, she is just what you're saying. It's almost like that other aspect of himself, that role that he played, 
has suddenly come back to haunt him, but it's not like a ghost. It's a real person who just what you said has come. And we'll see once we, we get to her full origin by the third issue that, that she, she, Oh God, I want to tell you, but I can't. Um, <laughs> she really has, she has literally absorbed those lessons. It's the best way I can put it. And you'll see how, how literal it is by the third issue. Oh, okay. You know, uh, that she really thinks that that's the guy. That's what she aspires to be. Because, yeah. that, you know, the, the world is hard, the world is cruel, and the only way that mutant kind is going to survive in this world is to do what that guy did. And she is going to do it. And she is going to emulate that. And she is going to become that thing. And she looks at, at him now and it's like, wait a minute. What happened to you? You know? What, what what happened to you? I remember when I was this is a sidebar, but when I was a teen, when I was a teenager, I remember my father looking at me one day because what happened to that sweet little boy? And he looked at me. He literally said, "What happened to you?" <laughs> Which I, I think most parents can relate to at a certain point in their child's life, you know. But that that's the way she is. She's looking at this guy who's now running the school. Who wait? Who's calling himself Michael Xavier? He took mm -hmm. this guy's name. Are you crazy? Did he brain? <laughs> did he telepathically brainwash you? She asked him that at one point. Like, what? What's going on here? She thinks she's doing a great service by basically, you know, kidnapping him and restoring him to the great man that he was before. It's really interesting. Let me let me take. Are really having the same question in the first issue of like wondering who this person is in front of them and what the real version of Magneto is. Is it this villain who was out to destroy the world or is it this compassionate teacher who wants to throw them a Christmas party? Right. And it, and the answer is both and more. Both. You yeah. know, because human, that's the thing. That's the thing. Human beings are not one thing or another. Some people are. There are some, I always say, you know, there are some people in the world and they're born with a certain wire in their brain is just not connected. And they're going to be screwed. And there's nothing, no medication is going to help them. They're just going to be screwed up. But that's a very, 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 very small sliver of humanity. Yeah. Most people, we're just complex. We have contradictions. And and I know when I was younger, the contradictions used to feel like a war inside me. How can both these things exist simultaneously? And as I got older, I saw that opposites can can peacefully coexist within us. And not only that, there is a, a level of consciousness and being that will transcend those opposites and open a door to something much, much bigger than that. But that's a whole other discussion for another a very time. Quick, a very quick New Mutants question, and then back to okay. my video. In a recent story by Trung Lee Nguyen, who I've got to interview on my show a few times, uh, he addressed the name of Karma, which was initially Sean Kwaiman, and he's now changed it to, uh, to Swan. And right. uh, the the way he introduced that is she uh, she was never brave enough to like correct her teammates who had her name wrong because he he made it more phonetically correct. But you used mm -hmm. that new version of her name, Swan, in this old story. I wondered about that. Yeah, we, we just we discussed that, and I think the the feeling at Marvel was you know let's let's not repeat that mistake. Let's just we'll do if, if that's a little bit of rewriting of history, so be it. You know, that's, yeah, that's completely as opposed right. to being perhaps offensive to somebody by getting it wrong. Sure, sure. Now, Magneto, if I chose my single favorite Magneto story, it's X-Men Unlimited number two by Fabian Nicieza, which explores Magneto through the lens of a bunch of different characters. It's really beautifully written. He murders one person, but it lets another live. We hear from all these different characters as one person is trying to seek to reconcile the different sides. It's been interesting to see different writers kind of take the complexities and try to answer them. Uh, Claremont gives us in X-Men volume two in the early 90s, the story of how when Magneto was reverted to a uh, 
baby, Moira McTaggart messed with his mind and it made a different version of him when he was re-aged to adulthood by Eric the Red. Or Scott Lobdell once posited that the reason Magneto's powers never developed in the concentration camps was because Magneto had syphilis and it delayed the advent of his mutant powers until later on. You also see stories about Magneto's... I never uh, heard that one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You also, you also see stories about Magneto's... Wait, wait, powers. did they come out in, in the comic book and actually say syphilis? It's a, it's a, it's a comment, yeah. It's a caption box in, I think wow. it's Uncanny X-Men 300, if I'm remembering. I'd have to go back and uh, do my research again. Uh, there's also a lot of positing that Magneto... His powers drove him mad, and that's what made him more megalomaniacal. Because there's right, and I addressed that a little bit too, because I I read about that, and and one of the conclusions, and I just that's not giving away a lot to 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 say this that we come to along the way is maybe that's true, maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. What matters for him in the course of this story is the decision that he makes here and now about who he's going to be and how he's going to live his life. Yeah, it's yeah. you know you know it's easy to say oh my powers you know the they warped my mind and then I did all these terrible things um, and maybe that is true and maybe it's just an excuse but it doesn't matter after a certain point it doesn't matter what matters is what's happened and what matters now is where do we go from here and that's the truth of our lives you know we there's just so much we can we can we can roll in the dirt with the past you know and, and wrestle with it and wrestle with our guilt or, or our shame or whatever it may be. How do you live from this moment on? And that's one of the questions that he's constantly wrestling with in this story. The uh, Who are Magneto's key relationships for you as you uh, examine this character? Who does he care about? Clearly, he cares about these kids or at least what they mean for him in this story. But uh, how Right. And he's wrestling with that, too, having to really admit to himself that he does care about these kids. And especially uh, what, you know, and it's interesting when you write, the characters reveal the relationships to you as you write. And I saw that there was this really special relationship with uh, Wolfsbane. You know, that there is just some connection there. And that becomes a thread that runs through the story. Not that he's not connected to the other kids, but at least in my in, in the universe that I'm playing in here, there's a really sweet connection there. And it becomes very important to the story. Um, you know, his... his uh, his history is so complex, and, and I don't know every corner of it that I couldn't tell you who the other people are that he's close to. I would think, you know, probably the person, uh, even at, at their worst, who he's closest to in the world is Savior. And that's, again, you know, there's another story I'd love to explore because it reminds me in a completely different way of Peter Parker, Harry Osborn, Green Goblin. You know, when I wrote that, that, that whole two-year arc in Spectacular Spider-Man, best friends, worst enemies. Yeah. You can't ask for a better formula for a great story because there's so much to dive into there. These two guys are completely opposed to each other. These two guys love and respect each other. Now let them fight and see what Claremont, happens. You know? Claremont writes them so intimately in a few appearances. In Uncanny 161, which is like the Nazi flashback story where they meet and Gabrielle Haller's there. Or like uh, Uncanny 200, The Trial of Magneto, when Xavier's seemingly dying and Magneto's like cradling his body and there's this intense eye contact. A lot of people posit that they're gay, but that's never, ever going to happen in the comics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, there's a level of emotional intimacy between them that's fascinating. Uh, and people, right. too, of course, explore the, the diametrical opposition of their, their, uh, their vision of mutant kind. Uh, you know, the Magneto was right shirts. Uh, and the way that's interpreted, because Stanley wrote him as such a megalomaniacal villain, but people are like, "Yeah, I kind of get it now." <laughs> there's a there's an interesting division there. Um, yeah. Anas, do you have another question? Uh, I'm good. 
Okay. So, uh, JM, I, I think we're exploring a lot of the complexity. The the completist in me wants to go back and be like, what about Lorna? Because the, the modern continuity is revealed she's his daughter and he gave her up for adoption. Or what about Moira, who in Hawkspox, she went back and revealed this like other alternate versions of mutant kind and what that means for him. There's a, there's a lot that I don't think will be picked up in your series because it's just modern continuity that just makes it more complicated. Yeah. And, and it doesn't know, mean it's, it's not it's, there either. It's a four issue series yeah, and yeah. You're, you're looking at you know if you, if, if you were going to stack all that x-men uh continuity up and build a tower out of it it would probably go to mars you know what i mean it's so there's so much stuff it's so complex um and, and you can't you know there's always going to be 200 things that no i didn't touch on that how could i i'm really the most interested in just digging into that psyche Mm-hmm. And using this story and the other characters as a vehicle to shine a light on that psyche and those contradictions that we're talking about. I, I, you know, you could probably take any of those relationships you're talking about and build another four issue miniseries just around one of those relationships. You could probably do four issues of conversation between Xavier and Magneto. You know what I mean? It would be kind of interesting. You packed so much into issue number one, and it's really, really beautifully done. In uh, in X Men minus one, which is a, a flashback issue, there's there's you, a, you know too much. You're, you're going to destroy me. <laughs> there's a story where Magneto is living on asteroid M. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are there. He's just formed the Brotherhood, and he goes down to Earth and has a conversation with Charles Xavier in Auschwitz. And it's very much a division about where where they're at. But there's this beautiful scene at the end where Magneto takes a handful of dirt from Auschwitz and returns it up to Asteroid M and places it there. Uh, your story gives me that type of energy where it, it, it captures the complexity of this character. There's a pathos there. There's a vulnerability. Uh, I'm really excited to see what comes next. Are you uh, able to, again, a couple more issues will be out when we release this, but are you able to give us some hints about what we might be able to expect? in the next few issues of Magneto. Well, uh, Ira has him now. And as I said, her 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 job in her mind is to restore him to the great man he was, which is to the the towering human destroying villain basically who in her mind is a hero for what he did. And she's um, calling herself the Queen of Wrath. <laughs> yes. Well, because I, 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 it wasn't clear in the first issue, but we, we, I, I, it's not a big deal if I say that her power is basically she can turn rage into physical force, basically. Mm, mm. So what she's, you know, when she's projecting that stuff and beating the crap out of Magneto and the, and the New Mutants, that's actually palpable rage that she's using as a weapon. Wow. She's also able to get into your head, find your rage and magnify it and turn it against you. So it's it's an interesting thing. And of course, the, as we see, when we get to the third issue, when we really get into her backstory, there's a lot of reason for her to be pissed off. You know? <laughs> um, and so so there's that whole thing. And does she succeed in turning him? Possibly, at least for a certain amount of time. And then, of course, the kids want to go save him. Right. But even there, there are some questions. You know, you have Roberto, who is, is the most cynical about him, about Magneto, who thinks, well, how do we know that he's not part of this, that this wasn't all staged to lure us into a trap? We don't know, you know, so there's, there's a, you'll see there's a big discussion between them about what's the right thing to do and should they trust him, should they save him, or, you know, so we get into a lot of that and then then we get into a lot of, we travel into the past several different ways, but it's, at a certain point we literally 
uh, through iRace connection to Magneto, travel into his psyche, into his past, back to Auschwitz. We encounter his family. We encounter his wife. We encounter his... Uh, so we literally travel through his psyche and, and travel through his past in a very literal way uh, while we're telling our big action adventure story along the way. I am thrilled that we get more content with Magda and his and his family. I think that's going to be yeah, really fascinating. his parents, his sister, yeah, and 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 Amazing. what that experience in the death camp did to him. Yeah, yeah. Now you again, know. we're going to review Testament right after this, so I'll have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, this, this, you know, uh, uh, I know that my wife had a relative and, and, and who fought in World War II, and he was one of the guys that went and liberated one of the first uh, death camps, hmm. and he was a devout Jew. He came back, he was done with God and religion. Wow. You know, so kind of going back to what we're saying, there's a level where even that first version of Magneto, given what he had been through, you kind of understand it. Yeah. You know, you kind of see what that level of trauma, and that's another thing that this story is about. It's about trauma and what it does to us. Uh, Iray's trauma, Magneto's trauma, um, and and how we sometimes how the victim uh becomes the oppressor. Because they, without realizing it, they begin to repeat uh, what was done to them, to other people in their lives. It's the same thing as, you know, abused, some abused kids grow up and become abusers. Because that's all they know. That was their reality growing up. And it's like programmed in there. So there's a level where that's true for Magneto too, you know. What methods should he use to destroy them? Well, the methods that were used to destroy us. So again, we could, you know, it's no matter how many strands of that spaghetti you're going to pull with him, there's going to be 10 more strands attached to it with interesting stuff. And even though I've had, I just, I just finished this, uh, the, the dialogue on the final issue the other day, yesterday, and I'm sure I could do four more issues, just, you know, just diving in there. Just like I could, have, could do four more issues just inside his head. Yes, walking please. Around, you know? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and preemptively announce, I'm not going to announce the guests, but this month on Gray Malkin Lane, you can be prepared for, we're going to cover Magneto Testament. After that, we're doing Classic X-Men 12, which is the early Claremont story where Magneto loses Magda and Anya. Then we go into Classic X-Men 19, which is Magneto as the Nazi hunter. Then we're jumping into Howard Chaikin's Magneto number one, which is very much the showman Magneto getting his costume for the first time. Then into Professor X and the X-Men number four, where we get to look at an early story of him forming the Brotherhood and recruiting Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Then we're going to jump to Marvel Voices Pride Iceman number, uh, the Iceman story by Anthony Oliveira, where we get to see Magneto uh, being very supportive. He's going to attack the X-Men, but he sees Mag uh, Iceman sad and instead consoles him. So we're going to look at a lot of complex uh, psyche versions of this character. On the Patreon channel, we're going to be doing uh, stories about Astra and the Maximoff family, and Santo Marco, and Asteroid M. So you can be prepared for focused episodes on all of them. Uh, we also have, Anas uh, uh, and I did one about uh, Alpha to the Ultimate Mutant, which is <laughs> Magneto adjacent as well. Uh, so there's a lot of really fun stuff coming out on the show, and I'm thrilled to be joining that. Later on uh, on my show, at, later in this year and early next year, we'll be examining early stories about Magneto fighting the Fantastic Four, the Inhumans, the Avengers, and the Defenders, which is all stuff that happened after after the X-Men were canceled, but before Giant Size Number 1 came out. So be prepared for a lot of Magneto on my show in the coming year. 
Uh, as we are wrapping up this conversation, let me just extend to both of you huge thank yous. I always love hanging out with you on this show, but it's really wonderful to examine this uh, series. And I'm really excited, Jam, about everything that you have uh, coming up with this character. Uh, we're going to put this out on October 2nd. Is there anything else you'd like to share, kind of some final thoughts? And then where can people find you both online and uh, anything you would like to plug? Uh, let's go. Yeah, first. sure. Let, let me have an go first here. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, by the time October rolls around, my campaign will have wrapped up for Kill My Boyfriend, which is currently crowdfunding on Kickstarter. Uh, but yeah, we'll be we'll be really hard at work on that one. And uh, I really don't have anything planned for the rest of the year unless, you know, something happens uh, shockingly. Uh, but yeah, you can find me online at NS underscore Abdulhaq on both Instagram and Twitter and Blue Sky and Mastodon and all the all the online places. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Kill My Boyfriend looks amazing. I'm very excited to see uh, that and have it in my hands when it Thank happens. You. Uh, and then Jam. Before I get to that, I just want to say you mentioned Santa Marco. V very important to our story, as you'll see as we go Ooh. along. That's all I will say. I uh, <laughs> I I have my Santa Marco research uh, done, and that means I get to add to it. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially when we get to the third issue. Um, I, I will tell you, I Ray is from there okay so. <laughs> fantastic there was a recent there was a recent story in the Krakoan era by steve orlando where santo marco was using the mutant feedback to power their entire nation and they had to go liberate him uh, it's been painted as like a very anti-mutant place but there's just not a lot of exploration about it no, this 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 will go back to that original X-Men story when Magneto first went there. So part of my theory when I explore my Santo Marco episode is it's interesting to note uh, like Cuba had just liberated itself in the 60s right before the Santo Marco story came out. And there almost seems to be kind of a Cuba energy to uh, the way that an original story is told. Yeah, yeah. Be interesting. Anyway, so that just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> um, what, what What's coming up? Um, well, as we're talking, even though it's just going to air in October, right? October 2nd, yeah. Okay, well, this is, I hate to tell you guys, it's September here. Um, and uh, <laughs> next week, September 5th, I have my new novella comes out, which is called The oh. Witness, which you'll be able to pick up on Amazon with 10 beautiful illustrations and a cover by J.H. Williams III. Oh, uh, wow. a, a story that I'm really, really proud of. Um, and then the day after that, of course, will be the second issue of, of Magneto. And probably by the time this airs, the third issue will be out. So all the things I was afraid to talk about, you'll all know already. <laughs> Welcome to pre-recording shows, everyone. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, what else is going on? I'm just about to start work on a new novella. I'm going to be starting work very shortly on a new Spider-Man miniseries. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I think last time we talked, we talked about my Kickstarter, the, the Multiverse Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when the voting was all done on that, because everyone had a chance to vote on which of the four new books they wanted to see continue, what won was all four of them. People wanted to see all four continue. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. I'm writing all four second issues right now. Artists are at work. And hopefully before the year is out, we'll do another Kickstarter and do a collection with chapter two of all four series. So that's I'm working awesome. away on all four of those right now. I am so happy to hear that. I love your work. I think you're a, a phenomenal talent, both of you, really. But uh, JM, I've been a, such a big fan for so many years. It's it's just it's amazing to have you back a third time on the show. Thank you for always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.
I will save my own outro for the end of this because we're going to jump into the Magneto Testament review immediately after this. But I will say the next episode, uh, the Classic X-Men 12 review is going to include the incredible talents of Sabir Perzada and Connor Goldsmith. And uh, I'm really excited for that conversation as well. Uh, so thank you, Anas. Thank you, JM. Everybody stay tuned for my conversation with Philip C.V. Christy Porter and Gabriela Garbero all about uh, Magneto Testament. Uh, we'll see you shortly. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to part two of our premiere Magneto episode. We just had that wonderful interview with J.M. De Mateus. Uh, I was joined by Anas Abdulhak, and I'm so thrilled to be joined in the second half of today's episode by three very dear friends of mine, three of my very favorite people, uh, Philip C.V., Christy Porter, and Gabriela Garbero. We're going to be jumping into a continuity-heavy uh, series called Magneto Testament, X-Men Magneto Testament, in just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to set it up. It's a heavy one. Uh, I've, I've got to give my little disclaimer at the start. If you have read this series, you know what I'm talking about. It uh, delves deep into the Holocaust and into Auschwitz. And we're recording this in America in 2023, which feels weird uh, for parallel reasons. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, let me have each of my guests introduce themselves. Let people know where they may know you from, what your gender pronouns are. And uh, were you familiar with this series prior to today, or was this your first read? Let me kind of just get your initial gauged reaction. Uh, first, let me welcome back Gabriella. How are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I am Gabriella Garbero. I have a blog called The Girl Who Sits, where I blog about disability and um, love X-Men, love what it represents. Uh, so happy to be here. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, what was the rest I had to say? Yeah, just uh, what's your familiarity with Magneto Testament prior to this recording? All right. Um, I didn't know this existed, and I didn't know what to expect when I read it. So it was a tough Sunday um, when I started it in the morning and finished it in the evening. It was a bad day. But what was a good day? That's the thing that's hard to talk about because it was so interesting, so good, so deep. But it was a journey. Definitely. I, I think I'm going to get the vibe that this is a first time for all three of you, which I'll hear, which I'm actually thrilled about because that means it's a fresh experience. I've read this series like 10 times for this podcast alone, and I love it, but it's hard every time. Uh, let me go over to Christy Porter next. Hi, Christy. Hi. Yeah, I'm Christy Porter. I use she, they pronouns. Uh, I am a journalist and writer, occasional cosplayer and comic writer. Uh, right now, I'm the managing editor at Salt Lake Magazine, so that's probably where I am currently the most prolific. Uh, yeah, this was my first I really heard of it. Uh, first I've heard of it, and yeah, it went in pretty cold as far as, uh, you know, I think the fact that, you know, Magneto was a Holocaust survivor and had been in Auschwitz, that was, you know, sort of knowledge that I had just having, you know, read and absorbed other x-men things over you know his that character's publication history but luckily philip had started the series before i did and gave me a bit of a heads up that it was heavy um i likewise like 
uh, Gabriella read the whole thing in one day and then promptly curled into the fetal position for like a solid 10 minutes and just sort of like let my body like feel all those feelings and let them go. You're not, you know, and, uh, and then carried on with my diet. So yeah, that was, that was, that was my experience with it. <laughs> Thank you for coming along on this journey with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then over to uh, Mr. Uh, Philip CV. Hi, Philip. Hello. Thanks for having me back on. I'm Philip CV. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I am an artist and writer in comics. I've done more uh, solely on the art side for the last few years, mainly working for Marvel on series like X-Men Unlimited, Edge of Venomverse Unlimited, and I just did a short in the Deadpool 7 Slaughters one-shot, which will be out in mid-November. So before that, I did a lot of writing and drawing, creator-owned series, and other things over at Dark Horse as well. And I was familiar with the series, was aware of it, had never had a chance to read it. So when the email came out um, about the opportunity to read it and talk about it on the show, I was... Um, I was looking forward to reading it um, because of the good things I'd heard, but not necessarily uh, all excited to read a Holocaust memorial. <laughs> um, oh, uh, there's yeah, going to be yeah, like some trauma smiles between all of us as we record. <laughs> they're just like, oh, there's a bad energy. I'm sorry. Keep going, Philip. No, no, I, 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 I read it and then reread it a few times. I think after I finished the first issue, I texted Chad and I was like, Chad, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and yeah, I think Chad's response was like, the first issue is the happiest issue. I was like, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to provide context. Now, if you jump back to the earlier interview with JM, JM, if you've read the new Magneto number one, which a couple more issues will have come out by the time we release this on October 2nd. JM is using flashbacks of Magneto's family in his story as he sees like images of his family and his younger self. Uh, we've also seen these characters referenced in a few other places. There's an issue of New Excalibur. There's some stuff in Extreme X-Men. Uh, there's a few kind of weird spots, like I think X-Men Divided We Stand, where we get some Magneto stories about his family. We're not going to delve into those issues today. We're going to focus specifically about this series. Let me give us some of the historical context for those. And this is not a deep dive. I have not had the pleasure of interviewing Chris Claremont yet. I hope to at some point, but I have read multiple interviews with him. Now, Chris Claremont has his own unique origin story, but he is Jewish. And when he brought in the X-Men and like they became really world famous, he was working really hard in the late 70s and early 80s to give all of his characters a ton of depth. And a lot of their stories got set in historical precedent. For example, Storm's parents were killed in the conflict in Egypt, right? And a lot of these are set in real stories. Now, Professor X and his original origins had ties to the Korean War, which retroactively, it's a different war that Marvel references now. But still, we have characters with historical context. And he wanted to make Magneto a much more sympathetic villain. Uh, we love a villain that has a story that we can really tie into. So it's in X-Men number 150 in 1981, when Claremont has Magneto discussing in a story titled I, Magneto, uh, in conversations with Cyclops and Kitty Pride, the fact that he had survived the Holocaust and his family had died. Now, there's some changing, shifting stories about what his Holocaust number was, for his Auschwitz number. There's shifting stories about what his specific origins were and his connections to Magda. We're not going to worry about that stuff today so much. We're going to focus, again, just on this series. 
Uh, in X-Men 199, Uncanny 199, this is when Magneto visits the Holocaust Museum uh, or Memorial in Washington, D.C. And this is where Freedom Force storms there and arrests him. And there's the very public trial of Magneto in the next uh, the next issue, uh, Uncanny 200. We also get the famous stories in classic X-Men 12 and 19 in 1987 and 1988 that review uh, a lot of Magneto's history after Auschwitz. And those are literally the next two episodes of this show that are coming out after this. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Uh, then we have the movie in, in the year 2000. Uh, Claremont left the book at a particular point, came back, and then we have the story of Ian McKellen as Magneto in that famous movie, which opens with him as a Holocaust survivor. Uh, and this series comes out in 2008. So the series we're going to review today is by uh, Greg Pak and Carmine uh, Di Gian Domenico, and it's beautifully done. And what they're doing is they're giving us the definitive origin story for the first time. It's incredible. It's tying up a lot of loose continuity, adding some pieces. And we're going to talk about some of the narrative choices that they made, but it's a really powerful, powerful story. Really beautifully done. I read it when it came out, and I've read it multiple times since, and it's hard every time. Five years ago, I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time, and I spent an entire day by myself at the Holocaust Museum in D.C., if anyone has been there. You have this sense of just abject pit of your stomach horror, but you feel this need to be there. You feel this need to walk through and witness the displays that they've so carefully set up to honor this awful time in history. And we have this thing that we do in, in comics and in X-Men where we tie in real world events and we make these stories sympathetic and we add superpowers and we give them supervillain motivations. But there's something just about this series that takes me back to that day in the museum in Washington, D.C., where I just felt empty and I wanted to curl up in a ball for the next couple of days afterward. But I'm so glad that I went and I'm so glad that I made that witness. And every time I, I read this series, it gives me that same sense. I've never been to an actual concentration camp, but people that I've spoken to who have toured the remains have a similar type of feeling. So there's going to be a heaviness. We can celebrate uh, Magneto as a character and the brilliance of Claremont in giving this character this story. Uh, but uh, let me hear from you a little bit of your thoughts uh, on uh, this kind of shifting history of Magneto, this portrayal of him, uh, before we delve into Testament. Anyone who has thoughts here? Um, I think it's uh, a stroke of brilliance. Uh, I mean, I haven't read a lot of the Silver Age stuff as a lot of kind of 90s X-Men fans growing up. And I know that's a lot of what you've discussed over the last couple of years, but that evolution of Magneto from where he was introduced from the Stan and Jack and then Roy Thomas era moving forward, uh, Claremont's changing and recontextualizing of Magneto and giving him that much of a kind of a richer depth in history is, uh, I mean, it, it created the, the villain that he is today. Uh, and having a series like this and I know some of these things are going to be talked about in other episodes of series. I have a hard time examining or discussing something without getting a little bit more context um, about where this fits in and what it does. But just the fact that uh, Greg Pock uh, with uh, editor Warren Simons was able to sit down and kind of look and examine, all right, here's all the things we know. Here's perhaps disparate pieces of historical information we've been given about uh, Magneto and how do we answer those questions and create a compelling story. And, you know, some of the things in the series we're introduced to is like 
Magneto's birth name, which we had not received up to this point. Um, his, you know, uh, his mother's name, his uh, other members of his family, his history with Magda, um, and kind of his potential connection to the name Eric, which he later then uh, takes. And we can talk about that more, but just um, the the choice to ground and flesh out Magneto by anchoring him to this moment in history that um, both Claremont has personal connections and ties to, and then um, that's just kind of a, um, a broad universal uh, historical event that is, is hard to not uh, feel very strongly about um, and, and reflect upon humanity's failings and, and uh, successes and things like that is just uh, one, of, one of the best choices X-Men has ever made uh, and probably will be for the entirety of X-Men history. I'll address this very quickly, although I did go into this with JM. I did a two-part uh, episode about a year and a half ago, uh, The Trial of Magneto, part one and part two. Part one interviews, or, or uh, kind of recaps all of his prehistory that's been added later. And then part two reflects on all of his stuff in the 60s. The X-Men have to have Magneto. They have to have this foe to face, which is the counterpoint to Xavier. And he is just kind of the ranting supervillain that Dr. Doom and Dr. Octopus and Dormammu and all those other guys in the 60s are, with the exception of he is really working hard to promote Homo Superior. He's very obsessed with the 60s, right from his first appearance, with creating a homeland for mutants. And Chris Claremont would later base his interpretation of Magneto off of Menachem Begin, who is a real-life figure who was kind of the counterpoint to David Ben-Gurion. Uh, in the formation of Israel. And David Ben-Gurion is kind of his understanding of the Professor X archetype or the way that Claremont interpreted them. So this idea of homeland is there right from the beginning. He creates an asteroid in space. He takes over Santo Marco. He storms the United Nations more than once in the 60s, demanding a nation for mutants. And then later that turns into Genosha and Avalon and, you know, Krakoa in the more modern times. So there is that piece that kind of sets him apart, which is why we could do the whole Magneto was right thing uh, in, in the modern day. Uh, Christine Gabriella, thoughts on uh, on this idea of interpreting his history this way? I, I mean, I think I'll yeah, I'll second what Philip said about you know maybe one of the smartest thing, at least like you know as an X Men reader, uh, and when you're already sort of using X Men for so much of its history as right this metaphor for marginalized and oppressed people. If you writing your villain like the smartest way to do that is to connect them to a story of horrific and systematic oppression as horrible as that is but it it grounds him so much in in the story and the conflict of the world that he's in right it's it's writing your villains to the you know most deficient and you know like but also poignant and powerful way i i think for me, it's interesting just because, you know, coming into X-Men when I did, like, you know, I was watching the 90s animated series where, you know, he's Magnus and he's sort of this bucket-headed, cartoonish, you know, very over-the-top, physically imposing kind of bad guy with, you know, just powerhouse as far as like mutant abilities go right and you know even you know the berserker wolverine can't touch this guy for you know very obvious reasons but you know that's that's sort of how he's kind of presented when when i came in to to x-men and then you know seeing his evolution like you know from 
you know, going into, you know, the the Ian McKellen character, who is not this physically opposing person, but then you, I, I mean, at least for me, seeing it as, um, you know, somebody who can lead a movement, right? And then, like, in his comics, like, where he's, you know, been at the last few years in the Krakoa era, you have a folk hero, right? You have you know, that's who he's become all the way from the Magneto is right to, I don't, I guess I don't want to spoil any Crocara. Am I okay to spoil like yeah, Oh yeah, yeah, spoil okay, anything. Okay. Fine. I mean, yeah, he's he's <laughs> dead right now, but his death, you know, has kind of lifted him up to this sort of like just legend status even more than he was before, this sort of ideal. Um, so taking it all the way back, taking this character to his most vulnerable his most weak before he really had powers when everything is stripped away from him and you get to see him at his most powerful and you get to see him at his most vulnerable and that is just something you don't always get to see with somebody with like this sort of crazy publication history and then still have it feel like it's connected still have it feel like this is the same guy and how it could still be the same guy yeah and gabriella yeah i I feel like I, this, my answer is not linear, so I'm sorry if it's incoherent, but it does tie into the first issue, so it's good that I spoke last, I guess. Um, But, you know, I've always really liked Magneto. I think at first uh, it was because I was trying to be edgy because he was like the bad guy, but he had a point, you know? And um, I think a lot of the criticism that I've heard about him over the years is that he sort of took a fascist and experienced being the victim of fascism and oppression and then just flipped it and reversed it instead of coming up with like a new system that everybody could be equal or, you know, Professor X's ideal, basically. And I think reading this helped me understand fully why he thought the way he did. Because I think he did at first, in the first issue, He's very innocent and he, you know, his dad, which I know we'll talk about this when we talk about the particular issues, but he, his, his dad is very optimistic and he's, you know, wants the best, hopes for the best as a kid, any kid does. And slowly he just gets reminded, no, you're different. No, there is a difference. No, it, you know, one of the recurring statements is like the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. and really what I think he finds throughout is it doesn't matter if you stick up or not, you still get hammered down. And I think that sort of message is really, really powerful as like somebody who is oppressed. And I think, um, I think this backstory, seeing it without just being told like, Oh, he survived the Holocaust. That's the whole thing. Everybody knows about it. We don't need to like talk about the details of like, the gas chambers and like what his job was uh when he was in a concentration camp you know like seeing all that um to me just really drove home why he became the person that he did and it didn't even in a way it was an origin story for magneto but it was an origin story to me for the whole person for why ideologically he thought what he did So two things I want to introduce quickly, and we won't even take time to talk about this. I'm just going to provide it for context. For everything that is included in this book, which is beautifully done, including some real-world accounts or mentions of real-world events, there's about a thousand things that are not mentioned or are not brought up. And two of the biggest 
the rise of the Nazi party, which took place over many, many years from World War I into World War II, a conservative party that slowly gained power during a time when queer people and Jewish people and people of color were being more celebrated for their diversity and they were finding safety in their community. And then it turned into the atrocity that we're about to see, which is one of the greatest horrors the world has ever seen, if not the greatest. Number two, the Jewish religion, and we will get into this a little bit more next episode. Uh, the Jewish religion has a very complex uh, history uh, spread out over thousands of years, and it's very delineated by region and by sect and by family tradition. There are multiple countries and multiple styles of this uh, this practice of this religion. There are many, many ways to be Jewish. Magneto is part of a, or, or, or Max, as we're going to call him in this series, Max is part of a very happy family, but there's very little context given into the practice of the religion itself or how it impacts him. We see Magneto as an oppressed person, as part of a society, but we get very little context for the impact of that culture on him outside of the family itself, which is a really interesting thing. And I don't know that we've ever seen that widely explored. We see uh, Magneto refer to the loss of his family or the atrocities he's been through, but there's very little context given into being Jewish, which is a really interesting uh, narrative choice, but I think also kind of a smart one in some ways. So again, we'll get in more into that stuff in the next episode a little bit. There is a whole history. You could read a thousand textbooks on the context here. It's also very important to note, and I'll just say this very quickly, although Jewish people were the most people who were killed in the concentration camps, uh, gypsies were as well. We will talk about that as well. And there's a lot of different sects of uh, people who practiced that particular lifestyle as well, as well as homosexual people and people of color and people with alternative lifestyles and people who were disabled. Uh, so there's a lot of different types of stories that are told. And we're going to focus specifically on Max's today. Today's episode is not meant to be a uh, uh, World War II history lesson. We're just reviewing a comic book series and its impact on one particular character. So there's a sensitivity here. But as hard as the series is to read, it's beautiful. So let's delve into issue number one. This entire series is, came out in 2008. It's by the incredible writer Greg Pak. Uh, the art is all done by Carmine Di Gian Domenico, with colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Natalie Lanfear, and Warren Simons is the editor. And it's a brilliant team, and I know they worked very, very hard on this book because it's relatively flawless, which is not something we can often say. Uh, on issue number one, and we're gonna we're gonna introduce this one issue at a time, and then talk about it. Issue number one, the cover, and every cover in this series is gorgeous. Uh, there is a boy dressed in red and black with a Jewish Star of David band on his arm. He stands surrounded by barbed wire. He looks into a reflection in blood and sees the master of magnetism looking back at him. There are elegant white leaves floating around in the sky, somehow reminiscent of ash from the gas chambers, although that is not content explored in the first issue. We open on Jacob or Jakob Eisenhart in his home. This is Magneto's dad with his brother, Eric. He's working on fixing some jewelry, but his eyes aren't what they once were. Luckily, his young son, Max, who is age nine, has a way with metal. In fact, he's been making his own original necklace from scrap. Eric assumes, his uncle, that Max has a girl he's interested in. Uh, Eric gives Max advice about what to do when a girl gives a boy a certain look, and they see Max's mother, Edie, giving Jakob that same look at that moment. Later, Max stands with students in gym class, listening to the teacher ramble on. He says, you are everything, sons of the nation. The hopes and dreams of your fathers and your father's fathers rest in you. 
Here we strive every day to train your minds and your hearts and your bodies, but your teachers can only take you so far. The rest is up to you. You must find the strength within, the will to seize that glory which is yours by birthright. Are you ready? During the speech, Max notices the young, poor girl, Magda, nearby. She's raking leaves with her mother. They exchange a look. The blonde boy next to Mac mutters, trash loves trash. A gun goes off and Max struggles in the long jump, and the boy teases him further, and Max is blamed for the teasing. The teacher calls him out. Observe, class, Max Eisenhart. He's really the perfect example, isn't he? Small, weak, but vicious. So, of course, when he loses, he snaps at the victors like a little dog. But now that we've noticed him, look, he just stares at the ground. His cowardice sickens me, of course. But it's the utterly stupid look on his face that truly turns the stomach. Er Kalb, uh, Er is Mr. in German, Er Kalb notes that Max is actually an amazing student, but the teacher interrupts. That's just his degenerate, cunning Kalb, vastly different from real intelligence. And remember that name, Kalb, we'll get to him a little later in the series. The next competition is javelin throwing, and an angry Max, as Magda watched, threw his javelin the farthest and received the top medal. And you get kind of a hint that he might have a way with medal uh, re reflected in this series multiple times. Eric Kalb tries warning Max. The Japanese say that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. But Max runs after Magda and gives her the necklace that he had made her as her mother rushes her away. Max then found himself in a celebratory street rally for the rising popularity of the Nazi party. And at the rally, Uncle Eric is bloodied and beaten. He's been being ridiculed by the crowd. He has a sign around his neck that proclaims that he has shamed a German woman. The caption reads, September 15th, 1935. During their annual party rally, the Nazis announced the Nuremberg Laws. A Jew cannot be a citizen of the Reich. Marriages between Jews and nationals of German or kindred blood are forbidden. Extramarital intercourse between Jews and nationals of German or kindred blood is forbidden. Jews are forbidden to hoist the Reich and national flag and to present the colors of the Reich. Back at home, as Eric was being tended to, Jakob Eisenhardt reflected on how he had served Germany in World War I and had been considered German enough then because he'd bled for Germany. Eric recommends they flee the country because things are getting bad. Max's sister, Ruth, says she just pretends to be German at the flower shop where she works. It's easier that way. A close-up of the medal that Max won, he realizes he has a it has a swastika on it. The next day, Max is accused of school of having used a defective jazz javelin the day before. So they then made the Jew prove himself with a heavier javelin, one impossibly heavy for a boy his size. But Magda is watching, and so Max throws his javelin even farther this time, and it makes Magda smile. But later that day, Max was expelled. He saw a Jewish teacher fired and beaten, and then some boys beat him with their swastika-marked medals. He's nine years old. End issue one. Let's talk about... Uh, the first issue. Tell me your thoughts, your reflections. What uh, what did you love? What moved you? Uh, Christy, do you want to start this one? Actually, can I pop in just real quick? Because I think yeah. it's probably an important disclaimer as we talk about stuff. Um, in, in context to the things we're talking about, there's a lot of terminology in the book that's used that it's very grounded in the time. And obviously some of the terminology is stuff we now understand as offensive, uh, specifically a lot of the terminology used around the Romani people and uh, Magda's family as well. So um, as, as, the, as you read the book or as we discuss, it's important to note that the terminology used is specific to that time, though it's not necessarily the terminology we use now or understand. 
I appreciate that, Philip. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. What was the just like thoughts? Yeah, I just love to hear some of your thoughts on this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, you, for me, like with the first issue of something, I'm always looking for what are they, what, what story are they setting up? Like, what are the elements that they're seeding here that are going to become important to under, you know, through throughout? So it's you know that we're we're laying down. Um, I, I particularly noted sort of the friendly, but sometimes, uh, you know, don't really see things eye to eye coming from very two different perspectives relationship between um, Eric and Jakob, uh, the two brothers. I think for me that stuck out partially because we later see this brotherly yet contentious don't see eye to eye relationship between uh, who, you know, Magneto, who was Max uh, and Charles Xavier. Uh, that was one thing that I thought was interesting. They sort of represent these two different viewpoints, two different ways to go about this like evolving situation that's happening around them. The other thing that really stuck out to me was, you know, uh, the the humanizing elements of it, in particular, the things that you know, as much as we know the reader, things are not gonna go well. Um, you know, that sort of dramatic irony. You know, it's still, we see a boy with a crush on a girl, right, who wants to play sports, even though he's not great at them, and, you know, uh, still tries hard to impress her, makes her things like we see this really soft, sweet child, and probably would have been an artist or a clockmaker like his dad or something like that were this. So, you know, we we already have this built in, like, what could have been like who this who this person could have been this person just so capable of love and so generous um and you know i don't think for me i thought it was interesting that the name that we know he will use later eric is the name of his uncle and we already see in his uncle this person who's a little more willing to fight back a person who's a little more willing to uh you know get uh <laughs> you know uh, position himself in the way of, you know, the powers that be, I guess. Um, and, and, and in all of these things, there's these tiny little things that I think will eventually become, you know, Magneto the person, but um, yeah, first issue and it ends so brutally and so violently, even though it is such a small thing in comparison to the, the context of everything that's going on around them and really sets us up for, what we're about to get into with the rest of the issues, I think. Like, I, I think it's very clearly signaling that this is this is not going to be like a sugar-coated uh, version of these of these events. We're not going to gloss over the the harder things that you know that makes sense. One of the things you're setting up here right away, which we'll reflect on multiple times in this discussion, is uh, Max's dad as the archetype for Xavier. He's the idealist who is the veteran who says, like, you know, I I belonged with them. I mattered. Things are going to get better. We're going to wait it out. It's going to improve. It can't get any worse. Is something he says over and over, which helps you understand Max's impatience with Charles, which is uh, implied but not directly stated in the series. Uh, Gabriella, let me hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, I I definitely saw the parallels between um, Xavier and Eric, I guess we can call him as an adult, and then um, the other Eric and uh, Jacob. Uh, or is it Jacob? I should probably say Jacob. The German I? pronunciation is Jacob, but you know. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, that was how I said it in my head, but then I just said it out loud the different way. So, <laughs> um, but I think uh, really there is a third point of view, which is um, Eric Hall, and I uh, his point of view. So the way I read it was the father believes um, in having faith in humanity. Uh, humanity rewards good people if you do good things, if you follow the rules, if you do things the right way, you'll be rewarded. And then his uncle, in my notes, I called him a doomer, but he, I think, has a very realistic kind of point of view about what's going on. He was a victim of, um, you know, pretty awful brutality in this, um, being beat up by soldiers. And uh, the teacher um, with the, uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down saying, um, I think it's a, I think it's a mix and I think it's don't get hopeless, but don't fight back. Just keep your nose down. And I think a significant aspect to that is in the end, the teacher that gets, um, pulled out of the school by soldiers when, um, Max gets expelled is that same teacher. So I don't think, I think a good thing that this issue introduces is, this is not a right versus wrong against a bigger wrong. This is a bunch of different versions of right against a wrong that isn't really fathomable, that there's no way to get through it the right way. There's no way to follow the rules the right way. There's not really a way to, to you know, loophole through the system and be okay. Um, Here's the part where I'm going to get fired up. Uh, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna keep it calm for just a moment. I don't know how intentional this was in this portrayal, and this is very much a commentary on modern America. We have all the students being lined up as one group of students is starting to be legislated against, and it's very public. We have all the students lined up, and they're be to being told to fight for one particular medal. This is the thing that you want. It has our swastika on it. This is the thing that you are trying to fight for. But some of you are very preferred, and some of you are scum and trash. But you're all fighting for the same thing. But if the scum or the trash win, then we're going to tell you why you were wrong and why the other kids that we favored should have won in the first place. And then we're going to beat you with the same medal that you were striving for. And we're representing disabled and queer people people as we're having this conversation. And this is something we are constantly facing as they are legislating against us and telling us what we should be fighting for in the first place. And I, as a father and as a citizen and as a therapist, get very, very, right? Like this, this makes me just horrified. Uh, but it's a really beautifully poetically portrayed uh, thing in this issue, which we will see expanded upon as the issues go forward. Uh, Philip, what are some of your thoughts here? You're on. Uh, you're on mute. There we go. It worked this time. Um, I appreciate that Gabriella brought up the line, the um, nail that sticks up gets hammered down, because that stuck out a lot to me. I think after reading the whole series and then going back again, trying to examine, like Christy was saying, what do they set up and where do they go with that? Like, in addition to a historical account of of the lives of Jewish people and what they went through following these certain events what is this story telling us about Max and what is what are the themes they're setting up? And I think that is a very important um, theme. And like Gabriella pointed out is, is uh, 
you see it through a couple different characters, but the idea that the whole series, especially we see it at the beginning here, but it happens the whole time. Everyone is telling Max to, um, to stop, you know, don't stand out, don't fight against. We see it here in this one where Cobb tells him like, don't throw the javelin so far. Um, and, and it, it uh, repeats throughout the series. Max is always in that position where he is not going to uh, diminish himself uh, to, in, to interject quickly, it's very much the dim your light so you can yeah. blend in, act um, more straight or act more comfortable. It, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, and that's very much it. And I think Max is fighting against that the entire series. And we see uh, in the end, without jumping ahead too far, but it's kind of like the, the completion of this arc. He is still the same Max, but he has learned how to push that even further and is no longer content to be told that he is going to actively fight against it. And that kind of finishes out the arc of what we see Max doing. And as we get further in, I think there's some interesting things that um, are left out of this telling um, that kind of ties into this. Christy. Yeah, I mean, on, I mean, and I think maybe Gab Gabriella was getting to this as far as that, that idea of, you know, the the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. And even the teacher who tells them this and, you know, is doing his best to essentially assimilate, be on party line, to not stick out, to go along, to get along, to stay alive, still ends up getting dragged out of the school, still ends up getting beat up. And I think that's something that also, you know, goes along with what you were saying, Chad, is like, you'll You'll even when you're trying your hardest, you know, as you know, as marginalized person, that for whatever reason you're not fitting the mold that people expect you to. When you try your hardest, you're still going to be singled out. You're still going to suffer consequences. You're still going to be punished. It's there's no winning, right? Like there's 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 going to be consequences no matter what. And I think that's another thing that you know, once you know, once like later on, once you're in the camps, that also comes up, like we're all going to die either way. So why are we doing it this way? The other, the other thing I almost forgot about that does come up in this issue that comes up quite frequently is his father telling him, uh, telling Max that he has keen eyes and uh, really calls out, not just Max's uh, perceptive powers, like actual, like having good eyes, but also like his perceptive powers and seeing things that other people might not see and being perceptive and insightful as far as the world around him. Uh, two things I'll bring up quickly, and then we'll move to issue two. Number one, Max and Magda have a connection. We barely see them speak, but they are connected from childhood. There is something love at first sight, the way that Max's dad looks at Max's mom, right? He sees Magda in this way, even though they are from two different worlds. The second thing is the implementation of symbols. Uh, one race of people, or uh, one religion or group of people is marked in a particular way, right? It's the pink triangle for the queers, and it's the Star of David for the Jews, where the swastika is the symbol that everyone is taught has the power that you look toward. There's a difference, and this is not a direct parallel in modern day America, between the pride flag and the black emblazoned, uh, you know, QAnon uh, American flag that you see out of the backs of pickup, pickup trucks everywhere. There's a, there's a difference in the way that we portray these things. Issue two. On the cover, a boy looks out at the road. Uh, behind him, there's a barbed wire fence. He touches the wire with his uh, fingers. Above him in the cloudy sky floats the image of Magneto. 
1936, and Jakob is taking Max with him to meet Jürgen Scharf, a man whose life he had saved during the war, and who he hoped would help him get his government job back. Max has a secret picture of Bogda taped in the back of his book. A man checked their papers aboard the train and saw them marked as Jewish. They arrived in Berlin, which was hosting the Olympics that year, which meant all of the uh, Jews not welcome here signs had been removed as the eyes of the world were on Germany. And this is a national thing that really happened. There's a lot of controversy about how the Americans knew about oppression taking place, not just the Americans, the world stage, but still chose to have the Olympics there anyway. As the public raged about Jews and Negroes winning gold medals, Jakob approached Scharf after a day of waiting and ended up getting beat up by Germans as a result. As they left the city, the signs against Jews went back up. Uh, Jakob stated out loud that he still felt that things would get better. Meanwhile, the Marzon detention camp had formed, and Magda and her mother were among the gypsy people rounded up and placed in the camp. In 1938, in Nuremberg, Germany, Max notices how German citizens are beating up Jews more regularly. Max is inclined to fight back, but the Germans would turn their rage toward another Jew instead, beating them with bricks. Max went home bloody. There had been news that a Jew had uh, shot the German attache in Paris, a real event. Jakob is reluctant to go to Poland, as Eric suggests they get out again. And the Jews in Austria and Poland are already being deported and having their properties stolen anyway. When Eric realizes Max had fought back, he was furious. Excuse me, when Jakob realized Max had fought back, he was furious, wanting his son to survive. Soon as they heard about the camp in Dachau expanding, they saw the Nazis begin to kick in doors of Jewish homes and businesses, and Max told his father sternly it was time for them to go. As they fled, the Jewish temple in their community went up in flames and there was chaos in the streets. Jews were driven from their homes at gunpoint, badly beaten, and many killed as they lost everything they had ever had. The uh, caption says, November 7th, 1938, Herschel Grinspan, a teenager whose relatives were among the 15,000 Polish Jews deported from Germany, but refused entry to Poland, assassinates the German attache Ernst von, von, excuse me, Ernst von Roth in Paris. November 9th and 10th, 1938, Kristallnacht. Across Germany and Austria, Nazis unleash attacks on Jewish businesses, homes, and synagogues. At least 91 Jews are killed, and 30,000 Jewish men are arrested and sent to concentration camps. Approximately 75 Jewish, excuse me, 7,500 Jewish-owned businesses are smashed and looted. Within days, the Nazis begin passing legislation to enforce the Aryanization of Jewish businesses. Jews throughout Germany are forced to sell their businesses to non-Jews, usually at enormous losses. November 12, 1938, the Nazis announce a 1 billion mark fine to be levied against the Jews to pay for Kristallnacht. The Eisenharts relocate to Poland, staying in terrible lodging with distant relatives, and just as they thought it can't get any worse than this, the Germans invade Poland. Uh, Philip, do you want to take us first on this one? Yeah, I think it's uh, also really important to point out the brilliant covers on all of these books are by Marko Jerzevic, uh, who is an incredible artist. I neglected to say that. Thank you. Oh, no, it's okay. As an artist, I was like, oh, wait, we hadn't talked about uh, Marko's uh, covers. Um, yes. Um, I think specifically this theme we're talking about definitely gets crystallized in this issue in the conversation between uh, Eric, Jakob, and uh, Max, where... 
talking about fighting back, Eric's response is like, you fought back, like way to go. I can't remember the exact line, but uh, Jakob's response is uh, fight back and they'll stomp on your head. Um, and I think it's really much the two schools of thought that surround Max gets crystallized in that conversation. Whereas we had uh, Kalb uh, kind of voice the theme in issue one, I think it's very much uh, Jakob. And, you know, with Kristallnacht and the historical things that happened, um, as shown in this series, it very much illustrates why that uh, point of view could be justified or, or uh, seen as the right reaction when, when one person's action caused the death of nearly 100 um, Jewish people and 30,000 uh, other, just, just a, a, a countless list of, of le things levied against a people, which were really just a scapegoat um, for reaction and hate. Um, you get a little power and then expands into more power and more power and you get away with more and more outrageous things. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit um, just uh, a bit ago about how there is not really an exploration of the Jewish religious traditions in Max uh, Max's family in this issue are in the series. And I think it, it kind of works as a broader commentary on um, the treatment of Jewish people during this time by the Nazis. It had very little to do with their religion. Um, it was more about them as both a people and a culture and just a, a uh, group we could focus in on and find ways to hate and direct our anger to use as a propaganda tool to, um, you know, uh, turn an entire group against another because um, it was not about specific beliefs and I thought that choice made sense to me as a as a, a nice shorthand for uh, what was weaponized against these people in the means of hate. Uh, German pastor Martin Niemöller has this famous poem which uh, everybody's heard at some point and I'm going to read this quickly here. First, they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. And there seems to be an element, and this is the Xavier commentary again, of we can see bad things happening to the Morlocks, or in this series, the, the neighbors down the road. But as long as we keep our heads down, and we're not the nails that stick out, perhaps we'll be fine. Where when Max wants to fight back, he knows that it, other people, other innocents will be retaliated against, which is very much uh, as part of the mutant metaphor. You start to get his rage at a particular point. Uh, Gabriella, let me hear your thoughts here. Yeah, I think um, that's what I was going to say in this one about um, just kind of the nature of fascism um, and the way that the groups that they are oppressing don't matter. It's not because of a trait of the group that the group can fix. It's not it's not a corrective measure, the, the way that they oppress people. It is just annihilation because they have to have a scapegoat group. And so no matter what that group is, it's not about anything they're doing. And that's what I think makes fascist oppression so difficult to counter, um, especially from inside an oppressed group, because I think it's very layered in that, you know, somebody like Jakob is saying, 
oh, if you follow the rules, you'll survive longer, implying that the people who don't follow the rules are doing something wrong, which that is the difficulty of like unwinding internalized racism, internalized ableism, internalized anti-Semitism, internalized homophobia, all of it is realizing that and I guess coming to terms with the loss of control, you cannot do better and survive the Holocaust. Like you can, it's not it's not a thing that you can master as a member of an oppressed group. And I think this really brought that home, especially in a in a very small way, when you saw the comments of um other Germans about um Jesse Owens winning um in the Olympics and doing really well. And while they were doing that, they were, I, I know Nazi racism is a whole like can of worms that we're not going to open, but, um, you know, at the same time, they were saying to black soldiers in America, like, you're treated horribly in the US, aren't you? Like, we don't do that to you. But like, they, they did. <laughs> they just, it wasn't their central enemy at the time. So I think that's what really struck me about this. Um, this one made me more sad than a lot of the other ones, um, especially seeing how it affected Jacob and how, um, you know, his friend, he saved his life. And then the friend basically threw him to the wolves and basically said, he said um, after everything. It took me two readings to catch it, but he said, uh, yeah, you saved my life and they wanted to kill you, so I just saved your life too, so now we're even. And that was like, it just hit me like a ton of, like, it made me so upset just to think, like, you should be grateful that I didn't just let you die, <laughs> even though I was the one who called the soldiers to come and get you because you were causing a disruption even though I don't think he could have caused a disruption because he was so like kind and docile. Um, and so I think that the the politics of this um, situation that they're in is so much more complicated than we can get into. But that was what struck me about this one, I think. Jakob in this uh, literally gets beat and still walks away hoping that things will be okay it's not yeah. until the very end where they like we have to go and the temple's on fire as they leave you know and it's already too late because the germans are invading the other countries at the same time you have to admire that kind of unflagging hope and faith but also it comes across as naivety and and uh it's painted in a particular way here uh christy what are your thoughts yeah i think that scene uh you know, sort of the train ride into Berlin and, you know, eventually do uh, when Jakob gets to speak with Major Scharf, who, yeah, is this person who said this life. I think that was, you know, was as far as setting up this whole issue, I first of all, that's uh, how not to be an ally, in case anybody was wondering. Yeah, don't don't be a Major Scharf. Um, uh, I mean, and I, I say it flippantly, but also I think, you know, it, you you run across people who you know want a gold star for you know barely treating you as human um you know i could have called you a worse slur or something so i mean i think already you're you're seeing he max 
through, you know, his kind of, you know, his father's, you know, almost blind, almost blind, probably blind optimism while he has the keen eyes, right? Like he sees, you know, Sharf for who he is and, you know, sees, okay, well, you can't trust anyone who is benefited by this system. You can't, who, who, you know, benefits from your oppression. Like those, those are not your friends. They are not going to help you, you know, and he, he is the one who sees, uh, you know, what's coming next as far as that is when they're going through the woods at the end, when the tanks are rolling down the road, when, um, uh, yeah. And it's, it's, I, I, I think that's the thing is like, that really struck me is being the person who can sort of see the doom coming and the person who is supposed to be guiding you can't seem to see it in the same way. And what a frustrating existence that must be for this kid who, you know, your world's literally falling apart and you probably feel like the only sane one there. Uh, and yet Max still has this picture of Magda who he hasn't seen in the back of his book, right? She represents the hope for him. Uh, go see my episode on Magda with Noel Reed, where we talk all about this amazing woman. Uh, I am so happy to have the three of you here. Uh, you're so smart and insightful and sensitive. And I've read this so many times and having known, like knowing all of you have read this just the first time, it's it's giving me new perspectives, even in a book I'm very familiar with at the same time. Okay, issue number three. On the cover, uh, men with giant guns are in the front, while a boy sneaks by them in the back, all in gray and black, except for his red shirt, which is very reminiscent of the little girl in the red uh, in Schindler's List, if you guys have seen that film. It's 1939 in Poland, and the Eisenharts are panicking as tanks, planes, and soldiers storm the countryside and the city both. Quote, the German army invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. Following the main German forces, Nazi Einsatzgruppen, or operational groups, hunted down Jews and Polish intellectuals. In September and October of 1939, the Einsatzgruppen and other German forces killed over 16,000 Jewish and Polish civilians. Two years later, Einsatzgruppen followed the German army into the Ukraine and Russia, slaughtering Jews wherever they found them. But the end of the war, by the end of the war, the Einsatzgruppen and their auxiliaries had killed 1.3 million Jews. The Eisenharts are fleeing into the woods, headed toward Warsaw, but they found the city conquered. Another quote from the issue, September 1939. In the wake of the Nazi invasion of Poland, a flood of refugees swells the Jewish population of Warsaw from 350,000 to almost 500,000. In the Jewish sector of Warsaw, entire families live in single rooms. Radios are confiscated. Coal becomes scarce enough to be called black pearls. October 1940, the Germans officially established the Warsaw Ghetto, forcing all Jews to live within an area less than two miles long. November 1940, overnight the Germans complete the construction of 10-foot walls around the ghetto, toppled in places, topped in places with barbed wire and broken glass. Over the next few months, the Germans drastically reduce food allotments to Jews. By 1941, the official ration falls as low as 699 calories per day for Poles and 184 calories per Jews. 
uh, by June, 2,000 people a month are starving to death in the ghetto. And uh, just an early comment on this. You're very much seeing the Eisenhards and other people no longer having any choice. There's no longer any option except to learn to survive. So now it's December 1941, and the Eisenhards are among the starving, freezing, overcrowded, desperate Jews and others pushed into the ghetto. Fighting for food, Max remains kind toward others who are starving, offering them crumbs when his own family is still struggling to survive. After Max saw a Jew killed in the street, he thought of killing the Nazi who did it. But his uncle Eric helped him realize that killing one Nazi would result in dozens of Jews being killed in retaliation. Max had a habit of finding coins to help his family survive so they could barter for supplies. The Jews were forced to turn in all of their nice clothing that they had remaining, despite the fact that they were freezing. Ruthie, his sister, had taken ill, and some tomato and beef stew that Max acquired helped save her. Edie kissed Max and called him a good boy. Edie's his mother. In July 1942, people were forced from the ghetto and into trains. Rumor had it that they were killing people, but they were promising bread and marmalade to those that got on the trains. Many felt that hard work would result in good meals, shelters, and united families, and so they were convinced to go still. As the Eisenharts planned to sneak out of the ghetto, Eric wanted to remain behind and fight, and Max desired to join him. Jakob took Max aside. You remember Major Scharf? I saved his life in the Great War. I never told you how, because the details aren't so... You were too young to hear all that. Ah, you're still too young. But Max, Max, sometimes in this life, you get a moment, a time when everything lines up, when anything is possible, when suddenly you can make things happen. God help us if we take that moment, and God forgive us if we don't. My beautiful son. So Max chose to go with his family. The Eisenharts escaped into the woods on a boat, and they found that someone had betrayed them in order to save one of their own family members. The Nazis forced the family to stand in front of an open grave. The Nazis opened fire. Max was able to evade the bullets, uh, subtly using his power, which then struck his family, and they all fell silently into the open grave. The silence on this page is staggering to me. Max walked away but ended up captured and forced on the train, which then went to Auschwitz. It's 1942. Guys, it gets rougher. <laughs> Oh, uh, Gabriella, do you want to start us on this one? How you doing? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this was tough for sure. Obviously, all of this is tough, um, to say the least. Uh, one thing I do want to point out that I thought at the la end of the last issue and the beginning of this one, um, one of the things I really like about this whole, all five issues, is he doesn't, his powers are not used as a deus ex machina. He couldn't save everybody. He couldn't put the bullets back on every Nazi in Europe and win. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that he was able to use to reverse history. Um, he was just able to be one of the very few lucky ones. And I think lucky is with an asterisk a pretty big one um i think another thing i didn't realize until christy you said it in the first issue but his perception i didn't really notice that they kept pointing that out but i'm realizing in the end of the second issue um he notices tanks coming over the hill and he can sense that because he senses metal and the same in the beginning of this, you can sense that there are soldiers laying flat in the grass because they have metal guns. And 
I'm just like I'm having kind of an epiphany about that because those are the those are the machinations of war that he's able to see before other people. And I think like that can have to do his powers um more profound than I realized, I guess. Um but um for this issue I think um I think it was important to establish um his humanity still that he has that if anything has grown. Um he gave the bread to the boy that was um that had taken it and been beat up by others and they had stolen most of it um, instead of eating it himself or saying like, you snooze, you lose, basically. Like he didn't, he wasn't snarky about it. He wasn't, you know, mean. He, I think it would have been understandable to eat the bread yourself because you're starving to death. Um, and I think here we get a really necessary and good overview of the fact that he is still a human being he still he has we see more compassion in him now than we did in the beginning um we don't know if he had it before he probably did he seemed like a really nice kid but now his compassion is oriented towards a cause and i i i think that this is really when we see um the positive side of Magneto uh, forming into who he will be as a man. Um, and then there's one really small thing I want to point out. The picture, um, I don't have the page number, but it's at the end of the historical record part um, where you see the little boy who steals the bread. Um, it's a full page shot of him with the Nazi soldier behind him. And the Nazi soldier is kind of eyeing him suspiciously. And in the background, it's it's snowing. And in the background, you see the Nazis' shadow, the soldier's shadow, and the snow is falling in such a way that makes it look like his eyes are like pointed like a cartoon to be uh, evil. Oh, sure, I see. Yeah. Do you see it? Yeah. I noticed it like immediately when I read it, and I was like, oh, oh that's like kind of nice um there's very much the uh, the dialogue here again of uh of no matter what you do you're only prolonging the inevitable right he can save his yeah. sister for a day he cannot fight back for a day but they're all going to end up still dead and we'll talk about the mutant metaphor uh, a little bit later on but god you guys this is a marvel comic book <laughs> seeing his family gunned down in a pit uh seeing that last speech his dad gives to him it just it just rends my heart into it's it's really rough uh philip what are your thoughts here I really like the in, the conversation between Max and Jakob um, because it echoes a theme that we've kind of at least touched upon. I, I think it's important to point out to talk a little bit more um, in talking about, you know, hopping on the train and they're promising these things. Jakob says, let's see, um, why would they kill us? It doesn't make any sense. And Max's response is, then why have they been killing us for the past three years? And I think one thing that was brought up a little bit earlier, and I think it's it's um, interesting to point out, especially with this turning moment, is how um, oftentimes, um, especially when we're younger, we look to the people, um, the people who are older than us, as as direction and guidance. Where do we go? Um, how do we navigate the world? What is right? What is wrong? And um, Max is very much 
<clears throat> Sorry, Mike, you're going to have to cut this a little bit to make it stream better. Um, Max is very much at that point where he's starting to realize, like, looking to the people around me, they don't know, they don't know how to save us. Um, and they are, um, they are grounded in these, <clears throat> in these ideas and these philosophies that um, won't save us. Christy. No, on that note, I think there is something about when you are coming of age in a time of conflict and oppression, just to kind of go off of what Philip was saying, that gives you and and maybe you know it is because you are the member of a marginalized group surrounded by adults who might not be or whatever the case may be and gives you that inevitable realization that you are more equipped to deal with this than they are that because you are of this time because you are of this era because and that must be such a terrifying and and scary notion as you know at this point teenager you know young young adult to realize that yeah you there's no way that the people who were who you were trusting to prepare you for life can prepare you for this moment because they are not prepared for this moment. Um, yeah. And I think this, you know, there's such sort of a, a, a terminal, even though this is sort of like the, the center issue of this, um, you know, five issue series. And it does, it, it is the pivot point. It is the turning point. It is, the end of you know his family's story at this point and we get the final you know moments that he's gonna have with them and kind of see sort of the final tools that they give him and what they can do right the advice from his uncle the story from his from his dad you know, his mom telling him that he is a good boy, being able to help his sister. You see just that these these are the final things that he's going to have. They are the only things of them that he's going to have with him as he moves on without so them. Go back to Magneto number one by J.M. De Mateus, who's showing us the time when Magneto's trying to hope again. And he's taken over Xavier's school and he's trying to protect the new mutants, but he's coming across as too harsh and they don't understand him. And he's seeing visions of the family he lost. This is such a complicated character, you guys. Well, again, we'll get into some more discussion of this. Uh, listeners, the last episode I recorded before this was the smut episode where we just laughed our way through and all four of us are like crying and like feeling so <laughs> go read this series if you haven't. It's a uh, it's a powerful journey, but uh, self-care is important too. Uh, let's talk about issue four. 
On the cover, a young boy is among the destitute entering Auschwitz. Shaved heads, hungry frames, that striped uniform they're all forced to wear. This time, it's all black, with a touch of red in the distance, on the gate that raises and lowers. The sign above reads, and this is historical, Arbeit macht frei, meaning work sets you free. It's September 1942, and the Jews are being ordered off the trains and into Auschwitz, and this was not the only concentration camp or the only work camp, where families are separated and possessions are taken, mothers separated from their children, husbands from their wives. Max immediately sees Fritz Kalb there, his old teacher in the camp, and Kalb tells Max very quickly, giving him advice on how to survive, give me anything valuable that you have, and then tell the soldiers that you're 18 and that you want to work. Max does so, and he's taken in a group, and they are forced to strip naked, and they have their heads shaved, they're dressed in stripes, and placed in an overcrowded bunker. Max sees a boy the first night who's only 14, be promised an education by a Nazi guard. We'll, we'll help you, just admit that you're not 18, and the boy wants to go to school, so he goes outside and is immediately shot. Air Kalb provides Max with extra rations and warns him, quote, there's no place for heroes here, Max. God himself turns his face from us. Uh, he then confesses, I am on the Kanada Commando. We sort the belongings of the new arrivals. It's the best work detail in the camp. And he places a bribe with one of the guards to get Max placed on his unit. Max just has to survive until then. He says, they'll kill you if you break the rules, but do everything just as they say, and you'll starve to death within a month. But you'll figure it out. You were also my smartest student, after all. Just stay alive, Max. But instead, Max ends up getting drafted into the Sonderkommando. We'll talk about that in a moment. Max watches as the Jews are tricked into the gas chambers. And then, along with the Sonderkommando, he is tasked with removing the items from the victims and then removing the bodies and placing them into uh, the pits where they are burned or buried. On a double-page spread, it shows Max looking at a giant pile of glasses, each one of them taken from the corpse of a victim. And there's similar rule or rooms in the um, museum that are referenced in Washington, D.C., one full of shoes, uh, each one representing a human life. The next page is all black. He says in a note that he writes that he will later find. So remember this note. My name is Max Eisenhart. I've been a Sonderkommando at Auschwitz for almost two years. I've watched thousands of men, women, and children walk to their deaths. I pulled their bodies from the gas chambers. I dug out their teeth so the Germans could take their gold. And I carried them to the ovens, where I learned how to combine a child's body with an old man's to make them burn better. I saw my fellow workers buried alive under an avalanche of rotting corpses. I saw thousands of murdered people burning in giant outdoor pits. I've seen at least a quarter million dead human beings with my own eyes, and I couldn't save a single one, any more than they could save me. Two years has passed, and Max sees Kalb among the dead, an emaciated skeleton of a man. We see tears in his eyes as he pushes the body into the ovens. He continues in his note, to whoever finds this, I'm sorry because I'm dead now, and it's up to you. Excuse me, because I'm dead and now it's up to you. Tell everyone who will listen, tell everyone who won't, please don't ever let this happen again. And he hides the note, but then, completely devoid of hope, he sees Magda in the camp. She's wearing the same necklace that he'd given her when they were children. Uh, Philip, do you want to start us on this one? I know this is rough, my friend. I'm sorry. Ooh. 
Um, do you know the historical significance of the final page? Um, uh, Max and his uh, fellow uh, members of the Sonder Commando are wearing jackets with red crosses painted on their back. Is that just the designation for what they are, or is there anything else? I'm just curious. As far as I know, that's only their designation. Okay, I was just curious about that. Um, yeah, no, it is a very difficult issue. I, I find it really interesting um, because the note that Max writes... Uh, the same text is repeated in the last issue, which we can talk about when we get there. But it's funny, not funny, but it's interesting in the way that it's written is the same text overlaid in two different issues. But the the difference in Max as a character from issue four to issue five and a lot of that coming about with a pivot change of him uh, finding Ma uh, Magda uh, very much changes kind of the the context of the uh, the emotion and the feeling behind this note. In in issue four, um, it is very much a despondent note. Um, it is a plea, but it is coming from someone who has lost um, everything and all hope. And like you pointed out, uh, Magda showing up um, changes the context and gives him hope. Um, and there's there's stuff I think we'll discuss um, with the next issue as it relates to Magneto as a character and his identification with individuals or people um, versus larger groups and stuff like that that I think is an interesting exploration. I think Christy will talk about that because she was the one who brought it up to me as we were chatting. Um, uh, very, very quickly, Philip, I just yeah. uh, looked up context. The Sonder Commando often just re wore regular garb. Sometimes they wore the clothes of the dead. But there's a famous film called The Son of Saul, which I've actually never heard of, in which the Sonder Commando wore jackets marked with a red X on the back. Oh. And apparently this is a reference to that film. I've seen many films, but this is not one that I've seen. So I'll make sure to look it up. Okay. Uh, please keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that was that was the thing that kind of was sticking out to me as it relates, especially going forward. And there's other things in this issue, but I will let uh, other people comment on them as well, because no doubt they stuck out. <laughs> Christy? Yeah, I think as far as, oh, uh, <laughs> I probably spend, um, you know, when, when I come across a, a page with reading comics that, you know, either jumps out for some reason or sticks out, you know, I'll spend some more time with it, really take it, the detailed stuff. I don't know if I have ever stared at a single page longer than I had stared at the page with no dialogue on it, with just the pile of spectacles um, that he is peering into the room. And I think, you know, we talk, I mean, and, and this series too talks a lot about the numbers of, you know, how many Jews, how many, uh, you know, Romani people ended up in concentration camps, how many people died, how many people were killed when this happened, how many people were killed when this happened. And there is something about a visual, and I think this is part of just why comics can be so powerful, of really making the numbers visceral, making you feel them. And that is just such a powerful image and such a powerful page. And as, you know, I think anyone who creates or writes, you're always looking for the metaphor, visual or otherwise, the, the smallest thing you have to show to communicate the big idea. And, and I think for me, like, this is it as far as like the horror of Auschwitz um, is this stack of spectacles in a room. Um, I think the other thing visually, and this to me, you know, was really, uh, I, I, so many of the things that stuck out to me with this issue were, were really, you know, visual things, um, uh, was the, 
we can track Max's journey um, through his relationship with um, gold. So at the beginning, he wins this gold medal. Then he's finding gold coins. And by the time he reaches Auschwitz, he is dealing in gold teeth. And human lives reduced to shoes and teeth and glasses. Uh, but yeah, those 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 are the things that uh, that that stuck out to me. And and of course, you know, I think we see sort of a mirroring of what happens to Kolb at the beginning, where you know he's the one to show up and give advice and try to really help Max survive the situation that he's in. And for all of his best efforts and, you know, ability to adapt and go that way where you just follow the rules enough, but not enough that you starve to death, still ends up, you know, ultimately, you know, meeting his demise. And, you know, that's, it just mirrors so cleanly and perfectly um, sort of Kalb's beginning and now his end. The scene where Max's father is giving him the speech, its this is beautifully narratively done, uh, my word. Uh, we see the scene of the family lined up before the grave. The Nazis are pointing their guns at them. And we see a cutaway as this happens of the father's speech, where Max is learning how to control his power very subtly for the first time. So as the guns are firing and Max finds a way to avoid the bullets touching him, the cutaway from his father's speech says, sometimes you get a moment when everything lines up, when anything is possible, when suddenly you can make things happen. And uh, Max is the only one that survives. And Max as a survivor, Magneto as a survivor, doing what it takes to survive. This is a story, if you read any of the stories or biographies of the Sonderkommando, they did not enjoy the work that they had to do. The members of the Sonderkommando often found their own relatives among the bodies that they had to pull out of the concentration chambers. And some of them that survived the concentration camps were pretty horribly treated afterward because of what they did to survive. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next time. Uh, in my next episode. But this idea of Max as a survivor is very a very key component of that. Uh, Gabriella, your thoughts on issue four. So I'm going to cry through this. I'm sorry. But, We're um, all crying. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when I first read this, um, I know afterwards I put it down because I was like, I might have to tell Chad I just like, cannot do this. And like, it's just too hard. But um I randomly this week before I read this um, saw a thing about grief and how to move past it or how people move past it. And it said people think that grief, um, I, I'm going to like butcher it, but it said like people think that grief gets smaller over time, but it doesn't. Your world just gets bigger around it. And while I was reading this, I kept just like coming to a stop and saying like, how could you move past seeing this many dead bodies in real life? I'm crying and it was in a comic book. Like, I know, I like, how, how do you do this? How do you move past it? And as, as small and silly as it sounds, I think you need this much room to be able to do what he 
ends up trying to do for mutants. Like you only a life that big with room for that much could save that many people. And um so that like hit me. I'm sorry. Um and I think uh just the difficulty to fathom the high number of people. Um you I think he um you need to have a lot of compassion that I don't think people realize um he has in the later comics, but he does. Um and the one that made me stop was the four panel page where he's writing the note. And the bottom corner, you can see like just shadows and um barbed wire and it says don't let this happen again and I feel like this was the most very obviously a foreshadowing of the future that he's gonna see happen to mutants and I'm glad that he writes that note at this time because I think he needs it he needs to remember and see that and feel that grief in order to move forward because um, he can't forget. The letter where he writes, my name is Max Eisenhart, that page, it's two pages, it's all in black, uh, right after the scene with the spectacles. Okay, I'm just going to keep us going. I know, uh, okay, issue five. It's a heartbreaking cover. It's a close-up of a boy's face, emaciated, tear-stricken, uh, and his eyes glow kind of gently, powerfully red. May 31st, 1944, we open on those in Auschwitz discussing escaped prisoners, Rudolf Verba and Alfred Wetzler. And these are real people, two Jews who escaped the concentration camp and made public the news of the German exterminations there for the first time. There was confirmation from someone who'd been there. Uh, this had been a closely guarded German secret for many, many months. Uh, they begin to realize in the concentration camp, or hope at least, that once the Americans heard of this, they would finally bomb Germany, finally get involved, but they worried that they might be killed first. Uh, and Pearl Harbor happened a while ago at this point, right? Max gave Magda some food for in the gypsy camp where diseases were spreading and arranged for her to get a job in the infirmary with Shulman, bribing guards with bits of gold and metal that he'd procured. procured. And you very much get the idea that Magda is giving him the will to survive. His sole mission becomes seeing her live. Quote, two months after the German tanks roll into Budapest, trainloads of Hungarian Jews began to arrive at Auschwitz-Birkenau. In just six weeks, 300,000 men, women, and children are selected at the platform, then killed in the gas chambers and burned in the crematoria or the outdoor pits. Over the burning pits, two guards are cruelly conversing. How many more Jews are there anyway, one says. Ha, enough to keep us busy for a few more months at least. And Max hears that they plan to empty the gypsy camp in a few more months. Max finds allies and begins bribing guards to get supplies so that he might escape with Magda. He gets a quiet moment with Magda, who tells him about how the gypsies have been standing up to the Nazis, but they're getting weaker. He's trying to secure a better transfer for her and told her to hide in the corpse pile if nothing else worked. They just need to live long enough. Max gets Magda out just before the gypsy camp is destroyed, nearly 3,000 more lives extinguished. On October 5th, 1944, as others were wondering if they should fight or not, Max stated, quote, 
On Kristallnacht, my father wanted to fight, but then the Nazis might have killed the whole family. In the ghetto, I could have gutted a Nazi murderer, but then they would have killed a hundred Jews in retaliation. Two months ago, I could have pushed the Hauptscharfuhrer into the fire pit, but then they would have killed the rest of my work crew. So to save everyone, I did nothing. And guess what? They killed them all anyway. As Max's group prepared, prepared their escape, Max heard that Magda had been sent back, half her group dead, and the other half sent to the gas chamber, or scheduled to be sent. He later found her hiding in the corpse pile. As the Jews decided whether they should keep Magda alive, a bomb went off in the crematorium, and there was finally an uprising, though the Jews only had a few weapons. Quote, once again, sometimes in this life you get a moment, a time when everything lines up, when anything is possible, when suddenly you can make things happen. God help us if we take that moment, and God forgive us if we don't. Quote, on October 7th, the Sonderkommando and Crematorium 2 and 4 rise up, destroying Crematoria 4, killing three SS men and wounding a dozen more. 200 Sonderkommando are killed in the, in the camp during or after the battle. Another 250 who escape the camp's perimeters are shot and burned to death in a barn in nearby Rajko. Crematorium 4 is never repaired, but on October 9th, the killings resume. 4,000 Jews are killed in Crematoria 2 and 5, and on October 10th, the 800 gypsies who'd been transferred back to Auschwitz from Buchenwald are killed in Crematorium 5. The Allies never bombed the death machinery of Auschwitz, but in November 1944, as the Red Army draws near, SS Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler, who was a monster, orders the dismantling of the crematoria. January 26, 1945, the SS Dynamite, Crematorium 5. January 27, 1945, the Red Army liberates the camp and the 7,000 prisoners who remain. Altogether, the Nazis systematically killed approximately 6 million Jews and many millions of other innocent civilians. At least a million people alone died at Auschwitz-Birkenau. The series ends in September 1948. Max returns to the ruins to find the letter that he had written, begging for this to never happen again. Gabriella, do you want to start us this time? Um, sure. Uh, so one thing that this made me do is the math on how old he was. Um, he was very, very young when all this happened. He was like 17 when he got taken to Auschwitz. And I checked that because every... It's a silly reason, but every single um, blonde Nazi soldier I saw, I thought was the bully from school, but it couldn't have been because even when he was like 12, he was a soldier. So I I think that was intentional. Um, it definitely made it really hit home that it's the same feeling for him, at least, but worse every time. Um, I am I am glad that you found the note at the end. Um just canonically. Obviously he needed that motivation to help uh the mutants in the future. But on a real life note, I think the this is when I really thought to myself, I am glad that they didn't have him aware of his powers yet really fully 
um, in the last issue, it showed him, or he said he was digging gold teeth out. And if he had known about his powers, it probably would have been less awful. <laughs> um, but he didn't because he had to experience that to be the person he ended up being. Um, and, you know, I, I I went back and forth about whether I liked the not even really a mention of his powers. And I think it was probably the best decision that they could have made about this. Um, because I think there, even though he's not a real person, there were really people that did this. They were really people that did this. And when they did it, they didn't have powers. They knew very well their own mortality. So they didn't do it with a fallback of a magical, you know, fantastical kind of backup plan. Like, well, if they shoot me, I'll just stop a bullet or anything like that. Um, and I think that's why this has been so powerful to read while we're all crying. It's because it's not the X-Men part of it. It's the real part of it. Um, the humanity that this brings out in all of us and the humanity that draws us to X-Men is it's the same kind of, um, you know, when you're pushed up against the wall, what do you do? And I think this really made me see that in him and it made me um, understand, I guess, like <laughs> revolutionary, like, like revolutionaries and why they do what they do and um just the the profound <clears throat> the profound sadness that um those kinds of things come from come out of um and i don't i don't have like a coherent like zip it all up at the end and here's how i feel you're, about the whole you're thing. doing it's, just fine it's just very it, it's you feel heavier after reading it. Um, if you have never thought of Chris Claremont as a mad genius, let me give you one fact really quickly. <laughs> Stanley and Jack Kirby did the original X-Men, their best story from the original run, although there's a few good ones and some all right ones, was the three-issue arc introducing the Sentinels. Uh, there is a man named Oliver Trask who publicly debates Xavier on the news about the rights of mutants, and he has designed a group of uh, toy soldier kind of looking robots that are meant to kind of hunt them down and contain them. Claremont picked these Sentinels up, and in Uncanny X-Men number 141 gives us the story of Days of Future Past, in which the Sentinels are used as the Nazi soldiers that round up the mutants, put them into camps, and exterminate them. This is nine issues before Uncanny X-Men 150, in which he gives us Magneto's background. The uh, idea of fighting back. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into that in just a moment. Uh, Philip, let me hear your kind of concluding thoughts on Magneto Testament. Yeah, I think with the fifth issue, I'm able to, I think, talk a little more critically um, beyond just the historical events, which um, are are their own thing in and of themselves. But I thought it was pretty interesting, and I know you'll talk about this next week, so I don't want to get too much, or your next episode, so I don't want to get too much into it. But in classic X-Men 12, in recounting a very small portion of this story, which is canonic, I think it was canonically the first time they looked at this, um, Claremont had introduced that in the camps, uh, Ma um, Eric, 
uh, Max Magnus. <laughs> it's hard because in '87, I don't know what we're calling him. Um, Max had My, Michael Xavier. Michael Xavier. <laughs> um, Joseph. Um, Max had <laughs> protected uh, Magda from a guard, and he picked up a uh, a wooden plank and he killed the guard in the camps before they escaped. So I thought it was pretty interesting that that was a a piece of his story that was left out of this telling. And I thought a lot about why that could be. And honestly, I don't know. Um, but it is kind of my um, my guess is that it, it's similar to what Gabriella said. By putting that extra power into Max, into his hands and into the story, it shifts the focus away from what I believe uh, Greg and Warren were trying to say with the story. And in the, I think it's the afterword of issue one, they talk about some of the genesis idea for this was a rise in Holocaust deniers. Um, and, and, and this came out in 2008. And I think they said they spent three years working on it. So somewhere around 2005, they were having noticing this and having this discussion. And that very much ties into kind of that, um, uh, the final, the final line of the series when he says, please don't ever let this happen again. Um, and it's very much um, not only Max's cry to whomever finds his note, which he then finds a couple years later and very much leads him in the direction he goes, but it's a, it's a message to the readers as well. Um, so I would, I would venture to guess by including the moment where uh, Max rises up and he takes a, a piece of wood and he beats a Nazi guard to death. It's the scene we all want. We all want him <laughs> to pull all the metal out of the ground and kill everyone. But that's not what the story is about, nor would it be true to the horror of the event that happened. Like Gabriella had mentioned, um, that uh, having that mutant power in your back pocket weakens and cheapens the effect of the story. But kind of going back to that first issue and that concept of the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, we see throughout the whole series all those moments when Max wants to stand up or when he fights back or when he pushes back and it's in that moment in rallying um, other members of the Sonder Commando in their, um, in their uh, cabin that he finally pushes forward. And I really um, appreciate and love the recognition of like, these were all the times that when something happened, something bad happened. And we've tried to do all these things to survive. And in the end, we are still dying. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit back anymore. And echoing the the sentiments his, his dad had shared with him in issue three, it's that same thing. It's that there's probably never a right time to fight. Um, there's never a perfect opportunity. There's never going to be success. Gabriella brought up earlier that idea of like, if you follow all the rules in a, uh, a fascistic or authoritarian regime, you're still not going to win because the rules don't make sense. They're not rules that are designed um, out of logic. They're rules that are designed out of oppression and out of power and out of hatred, and they don't make sense. They are, they are tools used to manipulate and hurt people. Um, and it's that, that arc that I see in the story. And I think the story is more an examination of this time and of what happened than a Magneto story. It is a Magneto story, but you know, Eric, uh, Eric, Max, Joseph, Magneto, Magnus, um, as a character um, from the very beginning is like, I wanna push back and I wanna fight back against this. And by the end he is, yes, I'm still there. I wouldn't say there's a gigantic shift um, as far as like a big, broad, obvious character arc, we are filling in the details 
and giving um, and helping see the motivation which continues to push forward um, that uh, and inform kind of that um, uh, personality and the, those values and those characteristics of um, of Max as a, as a person which pushes forward into his uh, time at Bagnito. And kind of going back to that, like when he rediscovers that note and we have, um, we are seeing the exact same thing that is said at the end of issue four is said at the end of issue five, issue four is said without hope, issue five, it is said with hope and it is said with power and, and standing there as, as, <clears throat> as Max looks forward into the future. Um, it's not just a plea that um, this not happen again. It's it's a vow that this won't happen again. And that obviously very much informs Magneto's character. You guys were also enthusiastic when you agreed to do this series with me. <laughs> I hope you're okay. My word. Oh, okay. Oh, Christy, final thoughts. Yeah. Um, ooh, okay. Yeah, we're here. Um, I think uh, Philip sort of alluded to this earlier, but so there's this debate that goes on in sort of the the barracks in Auschwitz after um, Magda escapes the, you know, eradication from the gypsy camp. And uh, there, you know, it's, he wants to, you know, they want to, you know, get rid of her so she doesn't expose them before, you know, they implement their plan. Uh, the, this uh, Sonderkommando, you know, they have this debate and it's like, you've, at one point, somebody points out to him, you know, you watched all these people die. Why does her life matter? And to me, this represented a really kind of interesting duality that I think sets up this character, you know, as, you know, sort of retroactively through a lot of his publication history. But um, this idea of like, which lives matter, which lives are worth saving. And obviously I don't mean this is like a judgment for anybody in this specific circumstance, but within Magneto, you see these, you know, sort of two motivations that are also set up at the end of this of like to survive because, you know, you are a member of an oppressed group, you know, both as a mutant and, you know, as a Jewish person and to also make sure this never happens again and how he's i i see him and how he kind of navigates himself can be dictated sort of by whether or not he has hope because when he has hope when he has magda there is something worth saving there's something worth fighting for when that is gone it is just survival and you know we see versions of him that you know don't value non mutant lives that you know value certain mutant lives over others um and i think in order to be the sort of person that can maintain your humanity and make those kinds of decisions you had to have lived through such an extreme thing like this where you had to make those there's no right choice here there's no wrong choice here there is just surviving and there is making sure this never happens again um i which i you know and i um <laughs> But yeah, I I think the other thing I wanted to point out was on the the sort of context, and Philip touched on this a little bit of you know this time when we saw sort of a lot of conspiracies and very anti-Semitic conspiracies become mainstream, you know, especially you know uh, 
I'm sure as they started writing this and into Obama's presidency, when it came out, we were all, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, really harmful ideas get really big platforms. Um, and that idea of making sure that this never happens again, how do you reach the people that haven't already, who don't already know this story, who don't already realize this was a tragedy and a travesty on the, you know, most unfathomable of, of level. And you have to ground it in a character and I think even though this is maybe more of a story about this moment in time, it is made all the more powerful and all the more kind of palpable and poignant and more P words um, because we see it through this, I mean, maybe not by loved by all, but at least this fascinating, interesting character with this very long history and that I think is sort of the, what makes, I think this way of telling this story of, of this moment of time of what are happening to this group of people, probably more compelling and more impactful than like the way that I was told it in through a textbook in, in high school. And, you know, that is saying something for a five issue comic series that made me, you know, want to understand better this moment in time. And I'm sure the more I would learn, the more frightened I would be just about the current moment of time we're living in. Um, so I'm gonna do but, I'm gonna do yeah, three. That was kind things. of my final idea. <laughs> I'm gonna do three things as we end the show here. Number one, I'm gonna wear my trauma therapist hat. This is what I do in my day job. I sit with people in their trauma. We talk about what they've been through and what they've survived and how it impacts them. And I've learned uh, how, and I'm a trauma survivor myself, I've learned how to carefully observe and witness and be present, but I can't take it away from somebody because it's part of the journey. It's part of the story. It's part of what we have to go through in order to get there. Uh, there's a line in uh, Charlie Jane Anders' recent uh, New Mutants Lethal Legions where one of the characters talks about how, you know, trauma is the thing you live with and then you like informs what comes next, but you never leave it behind, you know. Uh, I can't, uh, listeners or even the people here with me, I can't take this away. I shouldn't. I shouldn't even try. I can't say the phrase that it's going to make it better. We are sitting in real life outside of a comic book at, at a time that is 80 years past these historical events. This event and things like slavery and things like the AIDS crisis bring up similar feelings of horror uh, in individual lives and on a more macro level. And we have to learn to sit with them and learn from them. So I'm going to take this to a dark place for a moment. And this is <laughs> this is where we're going to sit with our commentary on what's happening in 2023. I assembled a list, the defining characteristics of fascism. Uh, listen to what uh, you saw in this story and listen to what you are witnessing in our world in different places around the globe, but in America as well right now as I go through this list. And I want to make sure to do this once right away 
people like to make the counterpoint that people who aren't fascists do the same kind of thing. So we're going to talk about flags at the beginning. The pride flag is not the same thing as a uniting banner for fascist oppression. It's not the same thing. People adopt symbols, but it's not the same thing when it's the oppressed group versus the oppressors. Okay. So this is the researched list of 14 defining characteristics of fascism. Number one, powerful and continuing nationalism. Things like mottos, slogans, symbols, flags. Number two, a disregard for human rights, which includes approval of torture, calls for assassinations of people that disagree. Number three, an identification of enemies as a unifying cause. Drag queens, transgender people, Jewish people. Number four, supremacy of the military at all costs. Number five, widespread sexism, a male-dominated, traditional, gender-rolled society. Number six, controlled mass media, censorship, questioning news, book burning, and censorship there. Number seven, obsession with national security and implementation of resources to keep that there. Number eight, religion intertwined with government, as well as religious and conservative principles. Number nine, corporate power and people who have a lot of money being given legal protection. Number 10, labor power being suppressed. Number 11, disrespect for intellectualism and the arts and sciences. Number 12, obsession with crime and punishment, where police are given unlimited resources to implement power and privilege for their own selves. Number 13, rampant cronyism and corruption. This is kind of the nepotism thing where you give your friends power and position. And number 14, fraudulent elections. And really, and I'm just going to say it like it is, all of this is associated with the Trump presidency. Sorry for our conservative listeners. I'm not meaning to isolate. But here's where I'm going to change my hat for a minute. I'm going to put my comic book hat nerd thing here on. Because here's what's interesting about X-Men comics. And this is the one of the things that we love so much about these series is most of their most consistent ongoing threats fall into this category. We can talk about Days of Future Past or the Sentinels or the Purifiers or Operation Zero Tolerance or the lesser known groups. We can look at figureheads like Nimrod or Bastion or Moira X, or we can take it to the current series of Orcus. And we see the Hellfire Gala, where Orcus attacks and tries to slaughter the mutants and wipe them out and make sure that uh, everyone knows that the mutants are wrong and that they are right. They are weaponizing fascism and brilliantly established by Jerry Duggan and Al Ewing and all of the other writers currently. And we are seeing mutants as an oppressed people. And then we open X-Men 25 and see Kitty Pride, who is the most innocent and wonderful character, slaughtering the soldiers that have wiped out her people. And Magneto was right. And we fucking get it because we see this story revisited in the X-Men every few years. And this is what unites us as comic book fans. Then we take the conversation to Magneto. This is the first time on my show where I've done a full month on one character. We're going to explore the complexities of this character, Magneto as the mutant messiah and what that means, and how he is often viewed as the tyrant who kills the people who oppress the people that he is trying to save. Uh, as we get into the coming weeks on this show, you're going to see a lot of the complexities of Magneto explored, including in our very next episode, which talks about the awful but powerful scene from classic X-Men 12 where his daughter dies, where my guests are going to be Sabir Perzada and Connor Goldsmith. And you're going to hear a lot of commentary on what we started here today, picking up into where we carry it next. Uh, okay, as we're wrapping up, 
We're going to put this episode out on October 7th. Let me check in with each of my guests. I just, I want to thank you all for three, for being friends, for being people that I respect and trust and love. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents, truly. And please take care of yourselves tonight. Go pour a stiff drink and sit in the hot tub or the bath and watch silly comedy or listen to ridiculous Bjork music or whatever you need to get through tonight. I'm used to this. I do trauma for a living. But even now, like, I don't... There's a thing that happens with me. I I am, I feel for all of my clients when we're doing trauma work, but I don't cry with them. Tonight I cried multiple times, which is telling me how much I'm affected by this conversation because I care about the three of you so much. So thank you for sitting with me through this very difficult but very powerful episode. As we are wrapping up, uh, tell me how you're doing, any final thoughts, and where can people find each of you online? And is there anything you would like to plug, given that we are releasing this at the beginning of October? Uh, Let's begin with Philip. Yeah, so by the beginning of October, in a couple weeks, Dark Horse Comics is releasing a Halloween anthology called the Headless Horseman Anthology, and Christy and I both have a short story in it that we wrote together, and I illustrated, and it should be a blast. There's some other phenomenal creators, Yay! Uh, Crook and Lucas uh, Kettner and David Dasmolchin and a bunch of others. Um, Leah Kirk, uh, Patrick is one of them. Um, so yeah, that'll be out October 23rd. So grab that. And a couple weeks later, I am illustrated a short. I illustrated a short story in Deadpool Seven Slaughters, which is a fun Deadpool anthology that also features other X-Men writers and contributors like Cullen Bunn and Mark Guggenham and Wilsh Portasio and Gail Simone and David Baldion and even uh, Daddy Rob Liefeld. So. Um, yeah, those are two of the most recent projects that you'll be able to pick up at this point that will have been announced. And you can follow me on I think Blue Sky, I'm Philip CV. Instagram, I'm Philip CV Comic Art. I have a website, philipcv.com, but I just, I need to update it, but it's hard to find the time some days. Uh, but that's where you can find and follow me and what else is coming up. Christy. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can find me at the socials on at Porter Geeks Out uh, or Christy Porter. That's the name I go by and the name I write under. Uh, uh, like Philip said, we have a book coming out with Dark Horse. Uh, also, I guess by the time this comes out, if you are headed to New York Comic Con, come find us. We will also be there so we can sign stuff for you if you decide to pick up that Dark Horse book. Um, but yeah, as far as final thoughts, um, Magneto was right. <laughs> And Gabrielle. Yeah. Um, I loved that you said earlier the the things to recognize in fascism. Um, coming from that, I do just want to remind everyone that there are some people who need help and can't always speak for themselves. Um, I, not to digress from everything but uh i'm disabled and during the holocaust um disabled people were who they tested zyklon b on before they did the gas chambers um they brought them to hospitals and said that they had to live there and um that was what happened (laughs) um and i think being part of that community makes me realize that there are um, a lot of groups that are not very politically advantaged that need help, um, that it's important that people are 
able to speak for themselves, but if you have the opportunity to allow that or to give a platform to that, that um, that is really, really important, um, please. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on social media. I'm usually happier than this. Um, <laughs> uh, all of my social media is at the girl who sits, um, except for Instagram, which has an underscore under every word because at the girl who sits was taken. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'm going to make it a goal now that by the time this comes out, um, I will have a blog post written and published about uh, body horror and chronic pain uh, in October. So that's my plan. Now that I've said it out loud, it's going to happen. Um, so it's been a while since I blogged. My blog is called The Girl Who Sits. It's at thegirlwhosits.com. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, I want to say this was like awesome, but I mean, like, you know what I mean? It was really sad. I, uh, this is not meant to sing my own praises, but it's going to sound that way. I'm so grateful for the creation of this show where one episode we can laugh about silly smut and like nonsense from the sixties, but in the next we can sit and delve into the trauma because it's all part of X-Men and it's the, it's the whole piece. It's, uh, it's chunky daddies and <laughs> time travel nonsense, but it's also the Holocaust as we mix all of this together. There's a reason we love this so much. Uh, I'm not going to do my own outro today. Everybody knows it. I'm just going to say thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll see you back here next week for uh, the next episode of Magneto Month. Uh, the month will get progressively sillier as we go, just so you know. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Gabriella. We'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.